You have arrived to episode 144 of the Becoming Human podcast. Yes, you're not in some other dimension. You're not listening to music. This would suck. This is a podcast. And it features Bruce McLaughlin. He's a writer, rock climber, and interior designer who has recently launched a Kickstarter for his rock climbing book, Let's Rock Washington, which features rock climbing areas in um, Washington and some other climbing areas throughout the world. And it's geared towards beginner and intermediate climbers from the perspective of someone who lives in um, Seattle. It's mixed between a guidebook and a personal journal of Bruce's favorite places to climb uh, from from his perspective. And that usually trends towards um, beginner and intermediate sport climbing uh, of the single or two-pitch variety. The Bruce's book has caused some controversy in the climbing community uh, with the route setters and f- first ascensionists in these climbing area, in some of these climbing areas, and I would just wanted to learn more about Bruce's perspective and understand the counterpoints, uh, what it's like for somebody to develop these areas, and um, how they those people might are wrestling with a different demographic in the climbing community people who are coming from like climbing gyms or are also from different kinds of institutions that are outside that locality like if you're to take your crag there's somebody who who maintains the crag and adds routes on the crag and um the further and further that it is away from the major um like metropolis right or the major population in the area you might see some divergence there because the people developing those crags might be in one place and then the people who are informing the majority of the residents in the state or the people who live nearby those crags are in another location um maybe that adds to like the friction and the divergence there and i want to understand what the what their relationship to each other are like here in washington you have the mountaineers then you have rock climbing gyms and then these like very remote crags um, which sometimes locals live in those remote areas and are maintaining those crags um, and developing routes on them and sometimes it's not the case so Bruce is kind of my dipping my toes into the situation. And I was also curious what it's like to be able to put out your own book. You know, it takes a lot of effort and forethought to go into making a book. And if you um, if you are successful in that there is a demand and people are interested in your work and that if you step on toes, like what what is that like? You know, um, but and my conversation with Bruce is he's a really nice guy and he loves climbing and loves to share it with other people. And I really enjoyed my conversation with Bruce. 
and I hope you guys enjoy it too. If you want to check out his Kickstarter, you can find the link to that in the show notes or on my website, becomingHumanPodcast.com. You can also find the links to his social media as well. Um, I'm going to play you in with a little bit uh, excerpt from the song Rejoice by AJJ. Enjoy. Rejoice despite the fact this world will kill you. Rejoice despite the fact this world will tear you to shreds. Rejoice because you're trying your best. It, it often feels like we're really far removed from childhood. However, I would would disagree. And that's why I like climbing and all these other things is because it's like, it's, uh, it's the same thing, just proliferated, you know, throughout your whole life, practice through your whole life. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, like, you know, when you were a kid, you would get together with your friends, get on your bikes and just go riding off. And just like, you know, back then your parents were like, okay, be back for dinner. <laughs> but if you can't be goddamn back before nightfall. And now yeah. you're free though, and it just feels like that with climbing. It's sort of like we're just gonna head on out into wherever and just go exploring and climb stuff with friends, and then come back to our real lives when you know the, the weekend is over or whatever. Exactly, and there's and it's an interesting thing there that like um, with with that there's no like safety that's entirely guaranteed, and there's a lot of interesting things that I have or that you see in these communities. You know, even with like. Uh, I find it interesting with avalanches and how the uh, the community tries to um, reduce the deaths and like and increase the safety margins. And I um, obviously I really believe in that and like you know oh, yeah. trying to help people have be safer out there and be able to come back alive. But there's this like the thing that that some people who are very experienced in that community are saying that the way that they communicate these things is like a lot of fear mongering. And that it's like, it's missing something. And I find it interesting in which we engage with things that are life-threatening and how as a culture and also individually, we try to more and more reduce the likelihood that you would engage in any really real consequential risk. Right. And, And like, and there's something that's, you know, very interesting about that because I think some people um, or people just in a broader sense actually gravitate and get a lot gravitate towards and get a lot of um, positive things from having to be responsible for their own lives and ultimately having to pay whatever consequences like not one that's determined by a society but determined by the actual experience in and of itself right and I don't mean yeah. how people are out there like oh I hope I don't die but it's like it's not contrived in a lot of ways right because the reality is is if you don't like get all your ducks in a row you can be stupid and and nobody's going to prevent you from making seriously consequential choices and that's pretty rare yeah. now so like it's that um I can't remember who does it but the ones who release that book once a year of all the accidents that mm-hmm. occur and the, the pie chart is literally beginners moderates 
experts. It is oh. the people who are out of their depth and the people who are just overconfident. Oh, I know everything. And they just mm-hmm. uh, get sloppy. So it's like, I'm happy to be in that tiny little moderate chunk. Yeah. Like, Don't ever get good. Get in your <laughs> enter in the really bad danger zone, dude. Yeah. Like, um, when I follow like the Dark Horse podcast with Eric and Heather, you know, when they did their trips with their students out into the jungle, you know, they had one rule. No one comes back in a body bag. Yeah. It's all like, you know, it's you judge your own risk. Like, if you just go wandering around touching weird frogs, mm-hmm. then, you know, you're increasing your risk. If you think about it and be sensible and, you know, follow, the, follow the, the guidelines, I think, you know, you can lower your risk. I mean, it's good to, like you said, embrace that risk, but, you know, embracing it on your own terms and with a, a bigger safety margin. Yeah. And that's what I like is embracing it on your own terms. Cause I even find my own self that I'm not, I'm very, I like climbing or like doing all these things, but I'm i uh, I'm very risk averse. Right. It, where it's like really hard for me to, you know, to, to push myself in that realm, but I get a lot out of stepping up to that edge and, and making it a, a personal thing in which I determine like what's okay for me. And it's interesting, you know, I'm like a single father. And so like, there's all those things that like play into it. Right. Um, but it's been like a huge, uh, experience for me and nobody's like outlined it. It's just something where I went up and I would have these experiences. And then all of a sudden, all this new information just came as a result, right. That was not predetermined. And like, I learned that, you know, I could have a goal of like wanting to climb really cool stuff and wanting to go on really cool adventures and i would see some of these adventures that would be compelling to me and i would set it as a goal i'm gonna go and you know do this multi-pitch route and i realized that this multi-pitch route is actually like um the the falls are more dangerous right or um or i might feel uncomfortable with you know my partner's level of ability and how much do i want to push it and then i might fall short sometimes of those goals because I didn't push it far enough. And when I would come back home, I would reflect on that. And it's so hard to understand what is real risk and what is perceived risk and how to differentiate that. Um, But reflecting on it teaches me that like, the goals that I set are sometimes to um, a projection in comparison to other people. And I don't really want them. Sometimes the goals are like, you know, just all these complicated things. Do I really want it? And was it, is it really worth it to, um, to, was, is it really worth it to engage in that risk, whether it's driving, um, it's the, the partner who doesn't have as much information, um, the route finding or the distance between like pro, is it worth it for me to accomplish that goal? And I think in like life, it, it could be really easy to, um, to, to fail and not achieve those goals. Um, or it could be really easy to push it too far, right? Like working too much without realizing the actual consequences, but out there it's like very intense and very apparent. Yeah. I mean, like just on that topic, I I read an article about, uh, that Sharma was talking about, and it was about, he was setting this like ridiculously high level route and he was trying to get it dialed in and he just couldn't make it. And then someone else stepped up and did it. And he was so and then like he, he listed in this article, like a kind of an epiphany of like, why am I doing this? Am I doing this to be the best or am I doing it because I love it? And he said that he kind of realigned him that, you know, other people are eventually going to be better at you than this. Is, yeah. is that really your, def- is that, does that define you? And I thought that was really beautiful because it was, you know, there's always someone in the group who's crushing it or like you were crushing it like, 
last season, but this season maybe you've got an elbow injury or maybe you didn't get much climbing in because there was a pandemic mm-hmm. and like suddenly, you know, you, you've dropped down the grades and it's sort of like, does that defeat you? Does that, you know, do you, do you want to go back to pushing grades or do you want to go back to having fun? Yeah. And, so, and I think that's what it's all about. Like, it's I just, think- yeah, I think so too. And it takes those moments to like, you know, uh, or to be, you know, impassioned, right. To, to realize that at least more often. Yeah. And also, especially with the climbing, like there's even other aspects to it. Like the fact of going out and camping for the weekend, mm-hmm. like to actually like, you need to be self-sufficient for a few days. And I know it's trivial. It's not like the zombie apocalypse or anything, but it's like, you know, just for a few days, you've got your stuff and you survive on it. And we've had people come out with us who've like never really done it before. And you can see that they have this really amazing experience of just being out in the woods, us around our little fire, chatting talking like you know sharing stuff like oh i haven't got anything to cook with can i use your stove and it it it's, has that tribal sense of community yeah. where everyone's just kind of help it's not like in the city whereas if you don't have it screw you mm-hmm. it's like you know if you don't have it tough it's like out there everyone relies on each other and just kind of and the same thing with the climbing if you can't finish a route and you back off someone goes you know what i'll give it a go and it's kind of sesame street cooperation yeah. everyone just like working together to get this route established and then we can play with it on top rope maybe that's where i found the sense of community is is so so deep right because i would reflect on you know my relationships and the relationships that i built through really climbing and a variety of other very like intense disciplines you know like martial arts and stuff the um those relationships are perhaps more like i bonded with those people more than i have my family in a lot of ways that i haven't shared those experiences with and um i reflected on that would reflect on that a lot and it's just like this you know shared shared suffering um shared goals right uh all these things and that's where i find these experiences can be can be so relatively intense right like even not sleeping in your bed is something like you know and it could be so trivial but for somebody who's not accustomed to it it's very intense and it kind of like gradients out through the personality (laughs) and the experience right and when you when you meet somebody who's uncomfortable um and in going through all of that you really get to meet who they are you know like the the masking the mask kind of wears away if you will. And I don't mean to say that people do that even intentionally. I just mean like, there's all this like thinking brain that kind of gets in the way of getting to know who you are. But yeah, in these well, situations, it's... yeah. And I mean, like, you know, when you're at work or you're on a date, everyone's, you're wearing a mask, you're presenting something. But when you're, when you're hanging off of the rock by your fingers and you're not sure you've got this next move, it's kind of hard to be like pretending to be someone else. So I think yeah. you get that. not just the being afraid, but then when you come down and you're around the campfire and you're talking about those experiences, then a lot more like pure honesty comes out. Mm-hmm. And also just like with mates, I always, you know, you kind of bond over the bad times when things went yeah. wrong. Like you got in a traffic jam or like, oh, remember when we were at like Europa and that huge chunk came off and went rolling down and everyone was freaking out. Like, you know, there's all, not, not that anyone like died or got injured, but like yeah. where like weird stuff happened and all like, you know, we were coming along and you came across that rattlesnake or you saw that mm. bear and all that. Like those, those become like almost like Hollywood stories yeah. that you're like passing around the campfire and, and you bond so much more effectively over that sort of stuff. 
exactly and you almost have like your own little interpersonal legends between each other yep and, and especially when other people join you mm -hmm. and it's sort of like so bruce what was it about you in that time when you threw yourself off of that talus field because of the snake? I was like, oh, okay. Um, right. The situation is. <laughs> I think that, like, the, the, you forget that these stories get passed on and become like, or not the stuff of legend, but people just want to hear the story again because yeah. you know, it got passed on to them. So they want to hear it from the source. And I find that it's interesting that it gives you like an inherent, and I don't mean this in a pretentious way, but um, it gives you an inherent purpose to like go out into the wilderness because I grew up in a uh, like a family background and a cultural background. People were maybe you go like you camp or you get together. And a lot of that was like based around partying and in conversations. Right. And not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but like when that was all that there was, you know, I didn't really associate like, you know, camping in the in the wilderness is anything like fun or, or entertaining in that way, um, because it just felt like all of the discomfort without any of the bang. Right. And I found that like growing or raising my son that even just like car, like to go camping for the sake of camping. And this is probably a very personal thing um wasn't something that it, it would be hard to do right because it'd be like oh look and see the landscape and i love that but it's weird when you like when you climb or if you do like canyoning or any of these things right even trail running maybe like i have a, a there's a mountain you know um that i really like to climb and it's it's mount erie and it's near my house you can drive to the top of it um people hang glide off of it and do some other uh things like that and there's this beautiful viewpoint when i first moved here that's that's all that i knew about it um there's not a lot of information inferring that you could like you know uh climb and stuff like that there um but since i got into climbing um it's been i don't know three years of being in the area and all i like i spend you know weeks out there every year and i'm almost in like the same uh the same area even you know, like I could be climbing like one crag and the crag could be, I don't know, like 200 feet wide or something like that and 100 feet tall. And within that, I could probably spend, you know, weeks like building my abilities there, sharing all these experiences with other people. Um, whereas when it was just a viewpoint, I'd drive up there maybe once or twice, view a sunset and then just kind of go home after yeah. a few minutes. Well, that's the thing is like on the eerie topic, like, one of the things that always freaked me out going up there is all those skid marks from people <laughs> drifting. And I was like, I really hope they only do this at night because yeah. if this comes hurtling down at me, I'm, I'm done. But also, like, especially at the top with all the broken glass. Oh, the yeah. Stations where everyone's like, so, yeah, other people go up to use the viewpoint and decide to just start blasting stuff. But, yeah, I, I totally agree on, like, in some ways, climbing does ruin you because it's sort of like... So, so we're going to go out on a hike. You mean an approach, you know, a, a hike is how I get to the climbing. And like mm -hmm. you say, just going out and going camping, you mean the thing I do between day one and day two, yeah. the climbing thing, it's sort of like, and you know, people who even like go out for like a, a nice long drive at the weekend. Yeah. Well, that's how I get there. It's like all of these, all of these things that somebody does as one aspect of their um, hobby or treat are just facets of the yeah. climbing 
And then on top of it, you get the climbing, you know, getting the route or being foiled or, you know, exploring somewhere new or going back to some that are like old friends. And you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, I remember this bit. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> but then, though, you find in comparison to like doing a, a long drive, but similar to like a backpacking trip, perhaps, or like trail running and, and such maybe if your drives were like really like crazy and off road, but you, you have all these moments of like stress, right? You have, you have social stress, you have interpersonal stress and physiological stress. And all those ones are like, for the most part, as long as they're not traumatic, um, they're, they're pretty positive because they, they elicit this kind of growth, right? Like your character emerges and your relationships start to um, develop further and all of these things. And I find it interesting because um, I, like I said, growing up and, and just like chasing substances and stuff like that, it was like, I couldn't imagine having like a life dream, like Dallas Cloakey would of climbing things in the Cascades. Like I, I did, wouldn't understand that even. And then now I see it as like, oh my God, th- these things compete with like my means to survive. <laughs> like it's always like hey let's go do this and it's like oh no i gotta make some money like it's like no you don't (laughs) i do (laughs) especially those further away trips that you you gotta prepare for like and i think one of our our like tougher ones was we did cuba Mm -hmm. and it was you know with the embargo and all the other stuff and there was that little window when we were actually allowed to go there under like one of 13 rules and one of them was professional research and it was sort of like climbing guidebook well i'm gonna need assistance who wants to come with me and so like heading into a country that we knew basically nothing about that's been sealed off from the world since you know for decades it Mm -hmm. was like you know uh, how many people are even going to speak the language it was like really going in blind and then yeah. just dealing with like an entire alien civilization because it's been in a bubble all this time so oh, wow how'd you guys end up putting that together yeah it was just uh just through the meetup and um uh i i've been wanting to go for a while simply because everyone said you're not allowed to go so instantly it was like really <laughs> you can't say I go, I'm going to find a way. And so we were going to fly out of either Canada or Mexico. And I'd actually contacted lawyers to see like what were some of the possible consequences. And they were saying that when you come back across the border, the border patrol can ask you, have you come from Cuba? But they are only representing the treasury. So you could say yes, and then don't answer any more questions because they're only asking on behalf of another government agency. I was like, Man, this is wow. complicated. That's but then, crazy. you know, Obama lowered the restrictions and we just got to fly there direct. And oh, so that's it, nice. was, it was an amazing trip. So, yeah, there was um, supposedly, I think it was in Climbing Magazine, they listed that there's the best 10A in the world there. And it's this one called Mucho Pompito. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was something. But I think another one was uh, there's a sea fortress that overlooks the bay called mm-hmm. Moro Castle. And it's kind of Cuba's unofficial outdoor climbing gym. And you go and you put webbing around the battlements, throw a rope in, rappel down, and just climb the walls of a castle. Because it's all this coral. It was like, we got some amazing pictures from that. It was cool. Because it was just so weird and outlandish. So that was was pretty amazing. Wow. That must have been a really cool trip to take. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. We've been taking, you know, so... 
I started this out as just a, a fresh climber, just wanting to, you know, I'm from London and then going, living in San Francisco and then living in Seattle. The outdoors was just, ew. I mean, no shower, no stuff. Why, why would you go outdoors if the city wasn't on fire? <laughs> and it's sort of like, and then finally, um, remember when um, uh, Bush gave us all that tax cut mm-hmm. ages back? I was at school at the time and I used it to go back home to London. And while I was there, some friends of mine took me to this mile end climbing gym and, and I did it and I loved the climbing and it was like, that was so much fun because it was exercise and you were figuring out this puzzle. Mm-hmm. And so I came back home to Washington and I, then I discovered that there were these climbing gyms around and it was like, I love that. So I got into it and then eventually people were like, so do you go outside? What do I look like? Patrick Swayze from Point Break? You know, only like 20-year-olds go outdoors. And then they started taking me out to like 38 and places like that. And I just totally fell in love with being in the outdoors and was rock it, climbing and camping. Was it like friends that, that you met at the rock climbing gym? That yeah, and the gym. Like, uh, yeah, one of them was a person who worked there. And then, of course, I was like um, my regular climbing partner was my ex-wife she moved um in with her husband in west seattle and could no longer come as easily so you know you post for a partner and then he was someone who went outside and he encouraged me to do it and so did some others and then it was sort of like you know they couldn't get out as much and i suddenly got the bug Mm -hmm. i want to go out i want to go out everywhere and i want to go everywhere now (laughs) and so i ended up actually like just running uh, getting involved in organizing a group and because i was just a a newbie as well mm-hmm. it attracted fellow new level climbers and so we started to get better and then more new people joined us so we started showing them what's what and we started exploring and going places and then just arranging trips like we've done puerto rico and kentucky and south dakota you know just heading out and exploring places and you know it's created this amazing group of friends and you know we're always adding more people who are like you know i've never been outdoors before you know he's okay dude if you've got harness and shoes you can come and if you don't have harness and shoes post in the comments because i'm sure someone's got a spare yeah just to get people out and exploring because i remember just how you know that that rapturous feeling when you're out amongst yeah. the mountains for the first time. When you, all I've lived in was cities, mm-hmm. and it was I wanted to give that experience to other people as well. And it was like you know just encouraging people who who just feel that oh, I don't know if I can do this. You know, do I need to know this? Do I need to know yeah. that? And it was like, look, come with us. We can guide you through it, and you'll have an absolutely amazing time. That's been one of my favorite things was um, was showing was showing other people who who are interested in this uh, in the activity you know how to get outside and and stuff like that because it was such a um, such a perspective shifting experience for me when I heard it, when I did my first Alpine route in like Washington Pass you know on like um, on Liberty Belt and it was like before that we went on south early winter spires with the north cascades mountain guides and they shot or one of the guides shadowed us and we did like a full trad course um and that almost like that gave me that that the groundwork for the confidence and know-how to like keep me and my friends safe as we get to the top of these really beautiful places but also very consequential places as well. (laughs) And the ways to get up there are like, are not very straightforward either. So it like, 
it takes a lot of, you know, a, a lot of uh, acquiring information and, and building your skill set. And then to be able to pull it all off and be, you know, and be safe and have all your yeah. backups for that. It's like a very powerful experience, you know? And yeah, I mean, I, I've only done like a handful of multi pitch, mm-hmm. but every time I was just shaking the whole way up, it's sort of like, because, you know, I predominantly just, I'm mostly a sport climber and I've done a tiny bit of trad, but it's generally single or two pitch. So when you do those five or 10 ones, I mean, why am I doing this? This is the stupidest thing I've ever done. But then when you get back to camp afterwards, that was so amazing. I love that. (laughs) I'm not going to do it again for a while, but oh, like that was so much, that was so much fun. (laughs) That's exactly how I feel. I mean, I was on like the Northwest corner on North early winter spires this summer. And it's like a, an old school five, nine route. And you have to go up this, like, um, this, this corner system, right. Um, in the dihedral and, it's like you can't even you can't stem inside of it at all and you're like doing these face moves and it's just like the whole time though you just see several hundred feet of air below you it's just like so exposed and you blay off of like a really thin ledge it's basically a hanging belay and it was yeah it's like those are the moments where i'm like why why am i doing this and then i see my friend and he's like several years ahead of me right and it's like his feeling of the exposure is just like oh yes another day i'm like oh my oh, oh, okay but like why am i doing this <laughs> but then you get to the top and it's like wow this is like an experience that i i um, will remember for perhaps the rest of my life you know and it, and it really like a opened up a level of character in me because like honestly there was a point in the climb and it's hard for me to talk about it because you see a lot of people who do it and they do it as like this is a big learning thing for me they do it as something that's very easy right relative to their ability and then um but then my experience of it like i was gonna swing leads and then i ended up following just because i got like well i did uh i led one pitch but i followed the rest of it because it was a little out of my comfort zone with the exposure um but i was like i was racked with exposure there and i love that because i was able to learn a lot you know that was like it's a safe situation on paper right um, a lot of people do it, but the feeling inside just couldn't feel any more <laughs> unsafe. You know what I mean? And like, I, I learned so much out of that because it's like the end of the the trip or the, you know, the multi-pitch route, it, it ended completely fine. So it's like this reassurance where I bring myself to this edge and it's like, this is, this is not good. This is terrible. And then I get to the top and it's like, wow, that wasn't so bad, man. You could do it. Like, this is okay. <laughs> I feel like, you shouldn't be able, you shouldn't be allowed to say the word exposure. That yeah. I think exposure, <laughs> like, you know, it, people who go, yeah, it's to be exposed. Yeah, the way you said that, it's not for you. For me, it's like, exposed. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah exposure, that's one that gets me, like, even on a, a low-level climb, especially yeah. on a traverse, that's that's where I really oh, yeah. wake up because it's sort of like, you know, oh, it's only 5.7. It's 5.7 It is like, you know, a few hundred foot drop beneath you. It's sort of like, I know I'm on a rope. I'm, I know I'm bolted in. I know I'm safe. But still, when your lizard brain sees that, it goes, you are in serious jeopardy, idiot. Why are you doing this? Yeah. 
<laughs> so you learn so you got to so you learn from like your your uh client local climbing community in the gym basically your peer yeah uh, so this was vertical world bremerton before uh-huh. it got closed down and so uh i was because i as i because i was at school weekends were for homework mm-hmm. so i would get these invites to go outside but so I, to be honest i used the homework as an excuse because it's sort of like you know, mm-hmm. I go out on rock in, in the wilderness where there's monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I graduated, I finally accepted. And they, there was a, a local crag. Um, it was, I think it was a firefighter's training area uh, up in Kitsap County called Eagle Rock. And they would take us up there and teach us how to set up anchors. And we would do little top ropes on their normal stuff. And then we started going out the 38. And then it was sort of like then out to Vantage and then Mazama and further afield and then out to like Squamish and then Oregon and then uh, inland into Ice. So, you know, just branching further and further afield to just explore new places and jump on new stuff and just explore and explore. Yeah. You know, who wants to come to here this weekend? Me, 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 me. And then off, off we'd all trundle. So that's cool. It's uh, something I'm so fascinated in because like I've done interviews with people who started climbing, you know, like a really long time ago and like even uh, like Dallas and Dallas Cloakey and then also people like more like um, around the tail end of like the modern era of, you know, when they were learning how to climb like before a lot of the um, like when the Geaton traditional like the modern traditional gear was getting introduced, you know, like Brian Berto and like right. Brooks Middleton, stuff like that. Um, and it's, and it's interesting how people, how like the learning process has, has changed or the different variations on how people learn this like complicated skill set. because right. this, the skill set in and of itself is like, like when you go and watch a movie right there's not much like preamble to go and access the movie right there's even when you want to go and paint there's not a lot of preamble to it like there can be you can go and learn you know like you could spend weeks and months learning this thing to improve your painting skill um, and understand how to paint in your medium but like with climbing i i realized like especially in getting into trad climbing there's like a whole lifetime of knowledge and before the internet it seemed like it was, you know, predominantly a mentorship, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, or, or someone isolate in their own isolated pocket, recreating what they think of climbing because they were never exposed to an outside body of knowledge. And then like, and there were no climbing gyms, right? And, and then as we like move along with all this information and the access to the internet and stuff like that, and then climbing gyms opening up, it yep. seems that like the, the mentorship, yeah. And the yeah. mentorship thing kind of like, I think it kind of exists, but most people that I talk to um, don't seem to have like, you know, a mentor, um, whether they've, you know, been in an, like a, a mentor from, you know, an area like Brooks Middleton, right? He right. does a lot of the development at, at um, Erie here in like Anacortes, Washington. And like he's, I've heard a lot of people being mentored by him, but that's not the common experience. The common experience, it seems to me, is like, um, is getting introduced to outdoor climbing at your local like climbing gym. Yeah. Is, and yeah. is that your experience? And yeah, I mean, uh yeah totally i mean um you know when you read the stories it seemed like you know uh people were introduced to it through their like little area their community and they were brought out and shown how to do it 
But now that the climbing gyms are appearing, you can go in there and not only learn how to blade, but they also do uh, anchor building, rappelling. Like you're going through all of the skills in a professional environment, in a safe environment. You know, you're in this little bubble where, you know, an ambulance is only a 911 call away. Whereas when you're learning out there, it's like, I think we can get a chopper in here, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's very very risk. Uh, and so that's what we've had is people who have been introduced to it in the gym. Um, when I announce groups, it's, it's always been, you know, whether you've, whether you're advanced, intermediate or new, whether you've even been outdoors or not, you're more than welcome because we arrived, the good climbers set up the routes. Uh, if you want to lead it, you can, if you just want to come and top rope, you're more than welcome. If you want to learn to clean, if you want to learn to repel, someone in the group will happily do it. So it's a very, communal thing it's a trail like it's our own you know free exchange of ideas and you're right with things like trad i think that definitely still requires like the mountaineers or a professional or a mentor because i mean do you really want to be on a route and someone's looking at their phone and got a youtube video so how do i place this <laughs> uh, yeah uh, oh that looks right it's <laughs> yeah it's gonna end in tears <laughs> so i think yeah it's like Getting into climbing used to be a lot, not not tougher, but you know the windows of access were more narrow because you needed that mentorship. You needed yeah. someone, and also someone who was willing to take you under his wing and show you things and show you how to do it. Whereas now you can go to Vertical Weld and go, I'd like to sign up for a class to learn how to lead, and you're there with, or even the falling clinics that they do now. Everyone gets there and climbs to the top and drops and practices falling. It's sort of like practicing falling i mean you know it's just weird that like what used to be you know again it used to be a very fringe sport but now it's entering the mainstream like it's just everybody's got access to it um anybody can just you know the parking lots are all now developed like look at the fact that there are now uh, pit toilets advantage and exit 38 it's Mm -hmm. like there are now well-established trails with signposts Whereas previously you were tramping around amongst the ferns trying to find stuff. So I feel like it's definitely, it's jumped from what, what it used to be uh, to what it's now becoming. And I'm sure there's people who, who like, you know, lament the fact that it's changing. I mean, mm-hmm. it occurs in any sport, like the surfer community in San Francisco. It used to be very locals only, very specific breaks and areas that were, you know, they just didn't want anyone else knowing about it. But as word got out, they got populated. And the people lament that, you know, this used to be just me and him out there. But, you know, the city's got so big, the sport has taken off. And, the, you know, it's, there's just too many goddamn people in the planet. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're all fighting for space now. So I think crowds are inevitable no matter where you go. Yeah. And so, and I think that's an interesting thing where like you, you have like an onboarding of people who are interested in this kind of activity. And like the, the thing that I find that's interesting is, is you have like one environment where you have like a climbing gym, right. And you, you have like a certain kind of um, like everybody's the way that you do something is, is personal. And then the institutionally, the way that you do something is, personal to that institution right Mm -hmm. like it's like 
everyone ha- will have their own kind of take on things. And then every organization will have its own kind of take on things. And you try to have this like standard standardization, you know, but that is something that seems to be imposed from the outside in, you know, not yeah. something that's just like a natural phenomenon that happens when there's a bunch of organizations or a bunch of individuals participating in something. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, you know, the mountaineers are very, very procedural. Mm-hmm. You know, they have their, you need to do this, 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 and this. And if you want to come on this trip, you've got to go through these tiers, which is great. It's very structured. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, like, it's a great learning experience. But, like, if you really want that regimented, okay, I pass this one on to the next yeah. one. Where ours is, ours is a lot more casual. It's sort of like the ropes are up. Do you want to jump on one? Do you want to... Do you want to lead? And, you know, when someone's doing their first lead, we generally spot people or we set it up as a top rope and they actually do the pretend lead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we're still safety conscious, but we're still, we're a lot more casual. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like if someone wants to try something, they're going to, you know, in especially in these modern times, God, don't that make me sound old? Oh, in these <laughs> modern times. Oh. Um, you know, if someone wants to do something, they're going to do it. And it's sort of like, and they're going to do it on their own and they're going to be running a huge risk. Yeah. Um, they don't want to go to the mountaineers because, you know, because there's, it's money, it's reservations. You've got to meet all these expectations. So people who just want to do it, they come out with us and it's sort of like, you know, we're there to make it as safe for them as possible. And, you know, they'll get to do it. And, and if they want to continue, if they, and so many people who come out with us, just keep coming out of us and have become mates long-term. I some of the group have been with us for like six years. Oh, and wow. like, as, as people come out more, some people move away. Some people end up having kids or getting married and settling down. And, but there's always new people joining us. So it's, it's, there's always this kind of turnover, but there's always been kind of a core group who's always that center who are like setting up the roots and helping people and teaching people. And yeah, it's just like, if you want to know, just ask someone, we'll help you out. That's cool. So, you facilitated a lot of this community through uh, meetup. Yeah, 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 that's it's cool to see that too because I remember when I moved here, I got into some wild shit through Meetup, and it, I was like, huh, I don't know anybody. How can I like do things? And a lot of things that you would look up online oftentimes could be like maybe blogs, like a commercial business, right? Um, writing about what it does, and so I'm like, oh, I don't really want that. And then, or like the Mountaineers, where it's something it's just kind of a different thing being a part of an institution. Then I would get in a meetup and I was like, Whoa, this is wild. I'm going to go, <laughs> go to a campground over like by Darrington and go meet up with a bunch of witches. What, what's this? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't know. And then I'd even go to like paranormal investigator things. And I was like, not that nice. I'm into those. It was just like, kind of like buckle up. Let's see what happens here. And so, <laughs> and that's why I think meetups interesting because it, it even goes that step further which I think historically would happen through like, I know through like churches, Dallas Cloakey would, um, they'd have like climbers with Christ or climbers of Christ or something. And they would like have a list in um, Dallas uh, called this. um, Was it? I forget his name. It's it's Chris, Chris something. Oh, I wish I didn't forget his name, but um, he's like, he's put up like a, some hard first descents up in like Erie and you know, he's climbing in Colorado now loves to knee bar, but uh, a Chris Widener, um, he was like 17 years old or something like that. And he gets this call from this old dude and never met him before. And he's like, 
see her on the list. You want to go for a climb? And he's like, uh, sure. And then this guy, he's never still Matt, comes and picks him up in this like beat up VW bus or whatever. And they get in the, the bus and they go off somewhere in the middle of the back country and like <laughs> in this remote place and go on some crazy ass adventure. And it's like, whoa, those kinds of things as they're happening more and more and more. It's it's fascinating because you could be connected to these like otherwise um, very unknown to you people, right? These strangers, and you can yeah. develop these deep personal relationships without ever having to work with them, be neighbors with them, or be family. And it's yeah. like, wow, that's that's pretty incredible. Yeah, so our groups generally range like I think our average size is about five or ten, mm-hmm. but you know when you do like thirty-eight or somewhere like that, they're up into twenty. And I think the most we ever had was we did a trip out to Banks Lake and that was like 50 people. Oh, wow. And it was because it was over at the peninsula on that beach. Mm-hmm. It was like a climbing burning man because <laughs> you, you need, you need to take a boat to get out there. Mm. So there was like three pontoons, four speed boats. There was a bunch of canoes and yachts. So some people were climbing, some more people were deep water soloing, some people were sunbathing and some people were water skiing or like doing the, the wakeboarding. Mm-hmm. And it was like, and then at night there would be like four campfires. There was the rowdy party one with the music. Mm-hmm. There was like the, the one that was a bit more chill with people on instruments. There was like the normal one where people were cooking and there was the mellow one. So it was sort of like you picked your like chill zone and it was sort of like, what, what, what am I doing? It's like, I've only a few years experienced climber. I'm not an excellent. And there is a small army of climbers infesting this beach. (laughs) And I don't know anybody. I knew like, I think I knew about like 10 of them. Everyone else was like, I hear you're going out the banks. I'd really love to come. And I was like, so, okay, so if you can get a boat or a place on a boat, you're welcome to join us. And so it was just a horde came out. And like the difference there between um, the role that you're fulfilling, right? In these situations, because they're, they're public. Um, you're like, you're not facilitating the experience as much as you are like, this is what I'm go- doing feel free to put it together and come and do it too. Yes. I yeah. find it like it's, I've even thought about it in, in my own terms um, with like what I would do inviting people and like kind of sharing this with them. And then I would think about like, I think about guiding. And then I would think about like, what is this in relation to that? And if I was going to move into like doing all of the certification courses to, to be a guide and facilitate those, um, and then also, like, how do I avoid um, either, like, legal pitfalls or how do I avoid portraying that I'm doing those things? Because I found that ultimately I wasn't because there was a, a pretty big difference there that a lot of what they'd have to bring a certain level of, like, skill set and know-how, and I would just be providing them with more information to move them along in their process. Right. Yeah. As opposed – because, like, when you're guided in something, you know, you, someone – I guess it would infer that someone would just show up and everything you're responsible for everything, right? Their well-being. you're responsible for um, all of their gear and for the whole planning and, and all of that. Right. Yeah. I, I, that's the thing. I, um, you know, when someone refers to me as like, here's Bruce, he's our leader. No, 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 no. I'm an instigator. It's yeah. sort of like, I said, like, I am going to, Vantage to climb Millennium Wall. Who fancies coming along? And it's, it's generally just a—it's a loose conglomerate. 
conglomeration of people head into this thing. Yeah. If people want to learn things and ask around, then that's up to them. It's like there's no there's no set parameters. Like we are going here to climb. If you want to lead, if you want to top rope, if you want to play around, all of that is up to you. It's sort of like I am just kind of like the inspiration to go to this location. Or yeah. like, you know, we've heard about this place in Oregon. It appeared in Mountain Project called Fiddler's Hell. So we want to go down and explore it. Who wants to come along? Uh, yeah, sort yeah. out sort out carpooling, sort out this. We've got some mountain project information. I ain't got a clue what's waiting for us there. So we're going in blind. So, you know, I've, been under, I've never been under any illusion that I'm some sort of guide or yeah. anything else. I've just been the, the schmuck who, like, went on it and said, let's go here. And who wants to come along? And so it's always, it's always been very, very casual. Yeah. So. That's what I thought because sometimes I would get concerned about myself in that way where I've never like, I haven't had, I've had similar experiences, but mainly it's more like, you know, I'd have like a, a handful of friends and we're coming along. I've been taking friends out into like Alpine trips as well. And I would reflect on that a lot um grow, growing like worried in the direction that i'd be heading and then i looked at jujitsu and the difference there was like if i were to go and do a um like cross train and i were going to go and uh, train at another gym like down in seattle or in olympia um people in my community who would have similar experience as i do or maybe are beginners in the community and are gaining experience right um and they don't, they're not even aware of like all the other gyms in the area. They, you know, they're not aware of like this really cool jujitsu gym that this guy's like a national competitor or whatever. And I'm like introducing them to this information. And a lot of the time I'd find myself like, Hey, here's really good gyms with instructors that have some great information and like a lot of a good um, history and competition. It would be a really fun thing to do to go and network and meet these people and go really though to go grapple with them and drop in on a class. And these people would be like, yeah, that sounds great. And we'd go out and do that. What I found though is, is that like 80% of the people, if I were to use like the Pridio method, you know, the 80 20 method, um, that 80% of the people would not, would want to do that um, and would love to do that on their own. But the planning and the execution of that and is something that is challenging and that they just don't often do for whatever reason. And mm. you find that there's like 20% of this community who's like, let's go do this and let's go do this and this and this, let's go to that gym. And I want to go here. And there's, you know, you start pull other people along if they want to come and yeah. you find that there's like a majority who will get pulled along by that minority. And right. And I've seen that in, you know, even in, I guess I, I would extend it out to some climbing gyms too, where you might start with some people who are doing like climbing indoors or whatever, and then interested in climbing outdoors. And it just takes that like one person or those small group of people who are like, Hey, these are all these trips. And then, you know, you, you start pulling this majority that way. And I've seen that even with Dallas Cloakies, a really good example, because it was one guy who's like calling all these people and has all these friends because not one friend's available enough for all the things that he wants to go do. <laughs> and he's like, let's go do this and this and this. And even Chris Widener, who's like an epic, you know, um, climber, you know, now, and he's really pushing those hard grades and he just climbs all the time. Um, that's what Dallas did for Chris is like, I, here's all of the things that I want to go do. Let's go do them. And Chris didn't have any of that gumption at the time, but 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree because obviously not on that sort of level because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just a moderate climber, you know, with work and everything else, I'm never going to get into the 11s and 12s and 13s. And I think that's been the attraction is that we've always been going to these moderate areas. So people who aren't hard level climbers are like, oh, can, can I get in on that? And I think another thing that has attracted people is like, you know, it's just, you know, kind of like the weekend climbing crew, you know, who kind of maybe get a little intimidated to go out with, you know, people who are like hardcore climbers. And it's all, I think, you know, that's why, you know, we we get a good balance of male and female of various like ethnicities and everything else because people who feel into like what was my major obstacle about getting into climbing outdoors is because you have this illusion in your mind from watching movies and reading books that it's these people who are like in their 20s and look like bruce lee who can hang by one finger and then you realize that you know you you can be like a you know, a, a middle-aged, slightly overweight computer programmer and still be able to, like, come out with us and jump on some 5.8s, 5.9s and 10.As. Mm-hmm. And, like, as, as that word spread, I mean, it started as a small core group, but more and more people have been encouraged to, like, just come out with us. So, yeah, yeah I see it. All it takes is that, that person to have the drive to, I want to go and explore and see these places. Who wants to come along? Mm-hmm. And people who are, like, you know, they don't want... they 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 don't want to organize or they don't want to just head there on their own or as a small group. When you see a, a crowd of people going, you kind of feel more safety in numbers. Yeah. It were. <laughs> it's like, what happens if there's a bear attack? When there's 12 people there, it's like, what happens if I'm the only girl? There's six <laughs> other girls going. I feel yeah. I'm like, I don't want to go out with 10 dudes camping and I'm the only girl. It's like, I'm sure everything's fine. But when I see that there's a bunch of other girls there, it's like, you know, it, Feel more it, comfortable. it feels a little less sketchy. Yeah. And um, the, there's there's other thing that I realized too with the, with like the climbing gyms and then like the outdoor community. Um, and I don't really think that there's necessarily a dichotomy there, but I think that there, that there can be in certain areas. Mm-hmm. And that's where I find it's interesting that you have like, uh, a swath of people who are coming up in this new way, right? With like climbing gyms and in these these institutions, um, like you know the mountaineers, um, and even hiring like a guide to show you you know certain things, right? Um, even like a single pitch instructor or a single pitch yeah. you know guided thing, so that you learn how to lead and do all your outdoor climbing. But then you have like route developers. And that's where I, I find that there's like, um, that there can be, I don't experience it here in like Burlington because Brandon Workman who owns Riverstone, the climbing gym, he develops a lot of the routes around here. Oh, cool. Um, but you find that sometimes in other places where there's like developers and they put up the routes and oftentimes I would assume that if those people live in these areas, right. Um, they're not in those climbing gyms where a lot of people are are learning or even like in the mountaineers perhaps are learning all of these um the techniques and um ethics and all these other things and then these the people who are developing and in these far-flung places you know in washington i can even think that there's like like anacortis would be a really good um notion you know vantage mizama um is like those people aren't probably are not bringing up the community. And if they are, it's like a fraction of the community. And it would right. almost remind me of either the, of the mentorship, you know, the mentorship program. Right. Um, 
And if people were to have like different standards and different expectations, you could see that there's a divergence in those two communities. And yeah, yeah. and then like, um, have you had any experience with that or? Yeah, they, I mean, there can be friction. I mean, um, places that, you know, word has spread about them. And especially because as developers, when they are posting pictures of these crags online, of like we've just developed this, 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 and this, and someone goes, "Where is it?" And they don't, they don't want to say, but it's like, but we can see where it is. It's sort of like you know, and um, yes, yeah, I mean, it's like that the surfing thing in San Francisco. It's sort of like you know, you want to people want to go back to that time period where climbing was fringe, and there was only a handful of people out there. But I think you know, people tell people, and word spreads, and I, I think. In some ways, that's good because this is one of the great things about Brian Bordeaux is the man is a bolt-in maniac. I yeah, mean, like, has he got that gun from a Cliffhanger, the one that just shoots the bolt into the wall? <laughs> because no physical human should be able to put up this many routes. Like, new ones go up every year. And then, oh, like, man. how long did Flyboys take? Mm -hmm. And, you know, all this stuff that is going up and up. And I think there was before... It was when I was first starting to climb, there were just set areas and the, the guidebooks were very old. They were black and white or they had just drawings and a lot of the information was wrong. And that's what inspired me to do it because how many people spent their time at the crag as a new climber? It, do you reckon it's this one? I don't know. It could be the 10C. I, you know, everyone was a lot, a lot more baffled and it was sort of like, that's where the notion of actually starting to to, to redo like something with like the newer climber in mind and everybody was with us was like, you know, that's a brilliant idea. You should totally do that. And, you know, so I continued taking pictures and doing beta and it, it really was um, a case. I think there were only a few areas before expansion began under Bordeaux. And I think it's great that like, yeah, you develop an area, you climb it, you do it, blah, blah, blah. But at a certain point, like, let it out and then move on to another one. Like, you know, cause I, you know, I've, I've started doing a bit of bolting as well. And this year I hope I'm going to like commit to it to some more cause we've found some areas that we want to develop. And, um, yeah, it, it was, it was the thing that got me into organizing in, in the first place. It's sort of like, I want to do it. No one else is doing it. It's the Gandhi one become the change you want to see in the world. It's like, if you, if you think the crags are too crowded or there's not enough, it's like, there is so much rock out here that we could be developing. And it's sort of like just trying to cling to these places being secret forever. Mm -hmm. It's not feasible. Someone's going to stumble across it. We were out um, dirt biking and we were like just going around the trails and it was sort of like, what's that? And we saw a rock and there were bolts all over it. And it's like, people are going to find these places by accident. So I think, you know, the inspiration to move forward and make more places and just keep expanding this rather than, uh, and I, you know, to use a terrible expression, I'm afraid the toothpaste is out of the tube now. There are just too many people who want to come climbing. Seattle is just getting bigger and people are flooding here because of work opportunities and mm -hmm. they discover this thing called the outdoors. They head out and, you know, I think, I think expansion is the key. And while I understand that it takes time to develop crags and you can, you can, you can sit on them and let them be developed. But it was like, um, 
the new Snoqualmie Pass book, like Keechelis Ridge. It was like when that got announced, I think some people were upset about that. But, you know, like it's been up there for ages and someone discovered it and someone told someone else. And I think it will be time to move on and like get some other areas going. I'm, I'm a very expansionist person. I like, you know, England and other places are very, very suppressive. Like if you're not the right kind, if you aren't uh, in with the right people, you shouldn't even be allowed to do this. And I, I found like the welcoming nature of so many people in America, like freedom of speech, freedom to do, and then freedom of the outdoors, you know, like London, Seattle, San Francisco have nothing like this, where you can just drive two hours and be in absolute silence with not another person around. I think that is magical. I think it turns people into better people. And I think that that is, that's a bigger focus than, you know, this crag is for locals only. I, I think thinking of us more as like a people than there is the old crew and there is the new crew that we don't want coming out with us. It's like they're, they're going to find it eventually. So, mm. do, you, do you find that like the the not discussing some of these areas or, or not talking about them yet um, is more about like not wanting certain people in that and not getting crowding, or is it like just in relation to the progress of the area being ready? to be um for people to come in like if it's been fully developed or not yeah definitely i mean but then again there are some areas that we've been to that are have been announced they've actually you know they've been put in a book mm -hmm. and god damn did there was there a lot of choss coming off left and right and we were getting pelted it's like i guess some areas are just more crumbly than mm -hmm. others but um yeah i agree that there is there is there is a safety aspect that, you know, definitely has to be taken on board. Um, and, and areas that I felt like I, I, I've omitted areas that were definitely, you know, I don't know about this one, man. It's uh -huh. like, it, it's fun, but so if someone comes in, they're going to get killed oh, you know, yeah. because it, it's, it's, even though it's been told to me, it's like, you know, you know, Oh, you should check out this place. And we've gone. And it was sort of like, dude, the bolt placing was weird. It's still too. And then other places were, you know, okay, be aware that some pieces are still, you know, little pieces are coming off here and there. So make sure you wear a helmet and climb safe and make sure your belay is paying attention because stuff is likely going to be coming his way. Oh, well. that makes sense. Yeah. And did you, um, and then how did you like, I'm just so fascinated what it takes to like, you know, to, to put something together like this a book at all, but like, you know, a, a rock climbing book especially but like where what was the process of gathering the information like did you have to do some visuals and then for for what you what you were writing and stuff how do you how do you garner that information it's it really has been um with the group we go climb it i i take a take i've been making sure to take a picture from the base of the route because we found that the ones where you take it from further back you know, especially places like Vantage where it's columns, up close you really can't tell what you're looking at. So I really wanted to get a picture from the base of the route showing you what it is. Uh, I, I would climb it, people would lead it, other people, and I would get everybody's input. So it wasn't just the beta for a six foot two Englishman. It was from a five foot two Asian girl. Uh, someone like, you know, from every walk of life, I got like, yeah, I thought that was kind of easy. What are you sick? Did you see how reachy that was? I was dying on that. And it was like, okay, 
may not be good for short people. Like, you know, it's like mm-hmm. at a grade if you're under six foot, there was, you know, and just getting everybody's input. And I was slowly gathering the information for like um, seven or eight years. And each time, um, a lot of time, you know, when I was taking the pictures and making my notes, people would be interested and go, so what are you doing? It was like, I don't know. I'm thinking of putting together a guidebook just for us, us low level climbers. I don't want to infringe on, you know, because people have written comprehensive guidebooks of areas with all the information you could possibly want on the history of it and, you know, and all the other stuff. And it was sort of like, yes, go forth and get those, like show some love to the people who set these areas, support them buy their guidebook. But if you're just a new climber and just want a, a little five zero for five ten D overview specifically for us, I you know, I felt like something, something for us would be useful. And I got so much enthusiastic feedback on it that I got laid off in August mm-hmm. and it was, I'm sorry to hear that. Okay. And, um, I've got time. I mean, with the, with the, you don't have to look for work because of the Rona, it was like, I'm going to sit down and do this thing because everybody has been sitting here on lockdown doing nothing trapped indoors. I'm going to put this together and, you know, see, put it on Kickstarter, see who's interested. You know, it's, it's going to be a small run, but it'll give like, you know, I don't know, 50, a hundred people or so a, a book to take in some places they may never have thought of. And actually give them the information that when, because, we discovered as well that a lot of five eights and sevens and nines, like a lot of the time, the beta will be okay. Warm up. Well, if you're a five, eight climber, that's not really useful because you need to know kind of run out between bolts five and six or bear in mind. You won't it'll look run out from bolt four. The trouble is the next one is just over a ledge. Trust it's there and keep going. Stuff that if someone is nervous, you know, like as a, you know, someone who's a five, eight climber, they're pushing their limit. So like how, you know, some beta specifically aimed at them. So it, it's beta intensive, um, very showing the route from the base intensive and GPS and, you know, parking and camping. And if the place is, crumbly or dangerous or if there's a crappy approach trying to give people as much information as as much warning of what they're walking into as possible without encroaching onto the territory of the real guidebooks because mine's more a journal of everywhere we've been so the main guidebooks remain as the definitive source with all the information you could possibly want especially when you jump out of the tens and mine's just kind of like a you know like a summary almost like a pamphlet of each area so people can people who are newer can jump in and have a better idea of what they're looking at and expecting. And are you writing it from the perspective or for, um, the, like the average, like the beginner lead climber or more from like, um, an emphasis on top roping? A, a little column, a, a column, a, a little column B, like, because it took me a while to commit to lead climbing. It was, I, I'm not a confident climber. <laughs> it's like, I have my good years. I have my bad years. Yeah. Like sometimes I'm up to leading 10 C other time. I'm up to barely top rope in 10 A. So I, I, I initially wanted to focus, especially on illustrating what could be safely top ropeable because some books would say you can top rope this, but it's the one where you got to lean out over the edge and reach down to the chains. Mm-hmm. And for a new person, that's going to, you're going to pee yourself. I would. <laughs> so like, so I like initially it was with a view to the easy stuff and top roping. But then as I got a little more comfy with leading, 
you know, so it just basically is 5-0 to 5-10-D. Mm-hmm. That's it. Sport only, no trad, no, you know, because a 5-9 trad climb and a 5-7 sport climb, I'm sorry, I was already sorry, vice versa. Mm-hmm. A 5-7 trad feels tougher than, say, a 5-10-A sport. You know, placing mm-hmm. gear, hanging there, doing it. And I just wanted this for, like, people who were just starting or people who just don't, they have a day job, they have a family, they have other commitments, they have other hobbies, you know, they are rafters and mountaineers and do other things. And it's sort of like, I want to get on this. Here's the information. Here's the picture. Here's how to get to it. Like, boom, boom, boom. Like, give it, give it succinctly, clearly, just for those people. Mm-hmm. So That makes sense. And, the, um, and then, yeah, and I can see that too, because you get the, like, there's a point where, you know, someone might not be, uh, like as familiar with lead climbing or there there's some people in the arc of like learning right where lead climbing the comfort of lead climbing and the the yeah the comfort of lead climbing is pretty high and Mm -hmm. then where other people it takes a very long time to develop that like that comfort to lead climb and and i find it to be um a pretty a pretty personal thing in terms of like how hard that is right like we all you know have a knack for something we all have our own weaknesses as well um like even i find myself like i'm physically um pretty strong and i'm pretty creative but i'm pretty scared <laughs> so it's like it's like i'm like yeah you're good there we go. i could be very tempered by that right and it's sometimes with areas um it could be kind of hard to strategize your day based around like you know top roping and sometimes i see it's done pretty well with like you know here's a here's an uh, um you could lead like this really easy you know pitch and then you could top rope for harder stuff right but um so that, that's cool that you added that feature in there yeah and, and, and I, de- I definitely point out like at the start like um so what crags okay this can feel a little sterner than other places or this can feel a little easier like you know and also the specific routes this one's a great early lead or a perfect first lead this one you know if you're new to leading you may want to rethink this one and like which ones you may want to stick clip because the first bolt is kind of spooky you know just trying to give us as much information as possible and and that was the thing with so many new climbers with us we never got kind of overconfident oh dude totally easy we got that but then someone new gets on it and goes man that second bolt oh okay good to know you know it it kept me very grounded like i had nothing but every time we were climbing, there would always be someone who's a little newer to climbing and I would get their perspective on something that on a year where I was feeling a little more confident, you know, I, I, I smoked it, but then like someone else jumped on it and he came down and he was shaking. It was like, that was me a couple of years ago. Jot it down, make sure that people know that, you know, there's, there's what I didn't see, what I was saying earlier, what I didn't see as exposure, they saw as exposure. Yeah, so make sense. sure that, you know, just trying to be as helpful as possible to everybody because the guidebooks that, you know, and understandably the, the, the real juicy beta is definitely in the 11s and 12s in most of the guidebooks, mm-hmm. you know, they do give some in the tens, but when it gets into the sevens and eights and nines, the beta is pretty much like, you know, not as good as this. Okay. warm up. you know, 
an okay climb. It, 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 they generally lack the information because they're providing it for the people who are, you know, if you don't make this move from this crimp to this hidden undercling, you're mm -hmm. coming off. So, you know, the, the, the really intense beta that is required for high-level climbs yeah. has been refocused on the lower level stuff you see that in you see that in smith rock too and it makes sense right relative to like what you're what kind of skill set you're gonna have um right. perhaps when you're like riding something right um or what skill set you're gonna have when you become uh when you're developing routes just on average right and with smith rock it's like the the easier climbs are pretty run out um right usually indicative by the people who were putting up the routes which were because which were a lot more um, proficient in their climbing ability. And those were usually, you know, warm ups or uh, low risk, high consequence kind of situations where yeah. for someone brand new, it might be more high, high risk, high consequence, or just very committing. Um, and Brian Birdo was the one who, who talked about that at length in the podcast I did with him. Um, and he, that was actually what went into his like, I wouldn't say ethics, but more styles for bolting, where his right. bolting's considered to be, you know, a lot closer um, together and um, sometimes even, you know, really close together with the, the long routes, like, you know, flyboys. And, yeah, I, uh, I ain't complaining. No, that's <laughs> a, and, that's the, and that's the thing, too, that so that's where I find it very interesting because there's like, there's this thing when you make a route, um, it's on, well, it's usually on like public property, right? And there's some kind of, some of the time or most of the time, there's like some understanding between the land managers and the people who are setting those routes, right? Um, but it's almost like a work of art in your own mm. way. And it's, only, and it's the closest thing that I can see as to, cr to facilitate and define a experience of adventure. Because it's, and it's all based around how that person decided to pick that line. And, but once that person picks that line and, you know, establishes the route and theoretically, if they have to, and which they likely do invest in the route because of all of the, the anchors and the bolts and all of these other things there, that's like a, a publicly accessible um, experience that anybody could have without having to have any kind of like approval by any kind of you know like governing body or any kind of right, institution right. and i think it's beautiful in the sense of like freedom right to where if you want to have these experiences and if you want to engage in that risk that is on your own terms and you are responsible and reliable for that if you get yourself into trouble and and i'm wholeheartedly i cherish that very much yeah because, you know, even if you go up into a route and let's say the route like detour or the, the routes like the bolts um, become very shitty or they got hammered down because of the exfoliation from the, from the rock, right? And right. now you're like, oh, no, there's no like clear detailed way to get down. And it's like, well, this is what the, the thing is. And we talked right. about this earlier where it's like your safety and your ability to return home is like it's in your hands and you're the one who's responsible for that even when this thing has been put up and created. And I love that because there's really not much that you get that experience for. And like I've been to and I don't I don't want to denigrate this like the adventure and all that other stuff, but I've been to Disneyland. And that's the only way that I could see of commercialized adventure, right? 
Um, yeah, you're in no danger whatsoever there. Well, and I and I and you lose you lose so much of it because there's like there's no barrier. And this is this is not an intentional thing that you create in the climbing community. This is climbing itself. There is no barrier to entry at Disneyland other than a cost. And so when you get to some of these places, it's the ambiguity to like reach the route or it's not that it's just knowing how to put gear in, right. Knowing how to read beta. All of these things are like um, physical, like uh, strength and endurance and uh, intellectual and technical barriers to entry that like, once you reach them, you can access this experience um, that becomes more and more um, comfortable as you do it. And I, I think that, um, I think that could be really powerful, but what I'm interested in is, is like the person puts up the route and then people climb it. And then there's like, we, you have like Washington, isn't it? What's warp Washington anchor replacement projects. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I remember basically joining the repo was the, was that was the slogan yeah yeah i i I never i never saw the acronym down low i've been waiting here for 15 minutes just keep waiting so how long 10 more minutes sorry bruce (laughs) no no worries so yeah i mean it's one of the things like a couple of things one it's when you know i go snowboarding um Mm -hmm. over the winter and it's like i get i start to get sick of it around now Mm -hmm. because you're so pampered Mm. someone helps you get your parking space someone helps you get food someone helps you on the lift ski patrols there in case you fall over and then i can't wait to get back to climbing season where i'm on my own i'm responsible for myself and it's why i love that um i think becoming human is such a great title for your podcast because like climbing really does do that it makes you human again because you're facing danger and risk it's like when was the last time in Seattle anyone had to fend off a saber-toothed tiger like yeah. our ancestors? It's like, yeah, we can't go out there and wrestle bears, but there are hazards. You can be prepared. You can think things through. You can take some responsibility. Mm-hmm. You can face risk. And the other thing you mentioned that I thought was just, I, I loved it. I've got to remember this. When you said about establishing a route as a work of art. Now, you know, coming from England, most art is in museums. So these beautiful works of art, you can, you and anybody can go see them. But then you get people who buy the piece and they have it in private display and no one will ever get to see it. You know, that, that's the thing is like these roots are works of art and just anybody can go out and appreciate it or not appreciate it. It was sort of like, God, that was awful. I mean, nobody loves every piece of art. It it can challenge you. It can challenge your perceptions and it can offer you a different viewpoint, but you know, there there are, there are roots people to love and people roots people hate. I just think that's the beauty of it. Someone went creativity and time and Mm -hmm. effort and made this route. And I think, you know, that's the accessibility thing of like, it's a work of art. It shouldn't be in someone's, someone's mansion that he only shows his friends on occasion. You know, I, I love it being public and on display and accessible. That's, you know, that's the beauty of it. Yeah. And I, I definitely think so too. And that's where it's like, it's so interesting that you have, even though like the, 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 with the warp, the, the maintenance of it. And that's where it was like, 
it's you get to these um, these older routes and that might not be maintained for whatever reason. And then you go back in and you maintain it. And there's like some sense of even if you recreate it. Right. And which you um, isn't I don't know if that's what retro bolting is. But if you were to go back and, you know, replace everything exactly how it was. Right. Um, it can become a collab. It becomes a collaborative effort at some point because that happens it happens often where you rebolt and you put it all in the same places but i also see times or i've heard anyways of times where it, the bolting place the bolt placement gets changed completely yeah i've and, seen that yeah and there's no like and because of the system that i that i love so dearly because of the freedom and the public and all of these other things there's that's one of the caveats of freedom in that sense and that is that you have that level of like chaos to where like anybody can go in there and um fix it but fix it to their own standard and if that standard is is not consistent with somebody who might have been spending like 20 years building different works of art in that area right. somebody could feel like two things one would be like oh yay my route these routes are getting cleaned up someone's helping it we can get more people in there and then there's the other one where it's like wait a minute that wasn't bolted like the way that i bolted it or that right. blah 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 whatever it may be right some delineation of that and i find it very interesting as that route developer where like where that feeling is because if you don't have like this institution that replaces all of these then it's all on the shoulders of these route developers and right. that doesn't seem very scalable or sustainable especially since the route developers are like um just because how it is with the the skill level and the interest and the time are a small amount of people and the right. user group is huge and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger to where it's over and it's inflating more than the developers have inflated um, at least in this, you know, in Washington, it seems. Um, I don't know. I think Birdo's at the rate he's going. Uh, no, Birdo is like, yeah, like, Birdo's like. There's going to be more roots than people in this state soon. And, and that's where, but but even with Birdo, though, is like if he he's developing these routes. But my question is, and I haven't spoke with Brian about this, but the more routes that he develops, that means that, and I don't know how long, you know, like uh, the equipment would last the more back maintenance will be required in time, yeah. right? I think I, I would go with, uh, just to jump back to your previous analogy, like looking on roots as a work of art. Mm -hmm. The artist has finished it. You can't 20 years down the line go, would you mind go, going back and restoring your work? Mm -hmm. You know, you're busy creating other stuff. There are, there are other people who can come back and restore it. And because I've seen like, They've like extracted the bolt and put in wave bolts in other places that wasn't practical. So they, they you can see the hole and the new bolt is over here. So yeah, that has changed it a little. I, I guess the people, you know, maybe they couldn't extract that one properly or, you know, so they had to set it off to the side. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a huge dilemma of like going back in and are you altering it? You know, you're weighing safety. Is this bolt yeah. truly safe? You know, and I think that's the that really should be a, a primary um, thing to consider. It's like, yes, we may be altering the route a little bit, mm -hmm. but if someone falls on this and it blows, you know, it, yeah, it's definitely a tightrope. Yeah. I, I would, I would, yeah, I don't even know the. 
the ethics of that. But the other thing that that comes down to it is an ethical dilemma, I think, as on a broader picture now that I think about it. I never really thought about this before. But if you were to go up like, let's say you you were to have, you know, a rocked valley, right? And it had Mm -hmm. walls on both sides and you were to develop your routes. And if there were like, if there weren't any uh, illegal ownership, right? But there were an implied um, ownership and like, this is my route. Once I create the route, I have to maintain this. If anyone wants to alter this, they need permission by me and so on and so forth, right? If you go on that personal way, when there's not like a, and I'm not advocating for this because I think this bureaucracy would be wild, but like, there's not like a, we're not talking about a third party, right? Or a second part, a third party where they're like, if anyone wants to change anything, regardless mm-hmm. if you put it up or not, you got to go through us, right? Um, but if you're talking about that, an individual, um, I guess something that I never thought about philosophically is that if you were to take that valley and you were to set up all the routes there, you would theoretically own that valley. And I don't mean like of exclusion to people going there. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying if you were to put up the routes, you were right. to have taken all of that swath of, of rock that was public land. And now you have controlled the what people, not the access, right? Because that's nobody's really done that. But you are controlling what can and cannot be done to that rock. And then that's like some some form of of privatization of of that rock itself. And I know that people might get really upset because you you put in a bunch you put in a lot of money to to creating the routes. I mean like what each anchor's I think it's over like fifty bucks for just like one, you know, anchor. And I'm like, you do put in a lot of cost here, but like that cost does not does not equal ownership or does not equal um like you know i see the attribution to do that i I get that but like this is my thing now and then now people need my permission i think that's a way to create some level of ownership um over this that has legally no definable ownership other than all the people and if it falls in that school nice my teacher said i could be done because i finished all my work good work maybe you get a prize on friday and then <laughs> if no prize okay well at least you got it she done said that's next week okay <laughs> and, I don't want and if you were to if you were to do that though um that would then not be in the public's like holding right because when the when the forest service is has a federal land they're managing it on our behalf but that's not what would happen in the other thing, right? Yeah. And if a third party, I don't, I don't, I hate talking about this part because I really don't want that to happen. But like, if, because I know there, I think it's like that in Europe or something, right? Where there's like a third party to bolt or to like climb, you have to like go through some, some pro, I'm not sure. But I know there's like, oh, I'll, some, I'll look into that. That sounds intriguing. Yeah, there's, there's some, I think there's some bureaucracy at least to where you have to have like some official thing to be able to create routes or something like that. Oh, that wouldn't surprise me. But like, like, Europe is so beset with insane levels of bureaucracy. It's why so glad to have emigrated. And that's right? why I wouldn't want that. But I just think about that. And it's like, because all these institutions only manage the land on our behalf. Um, but if someone were to actually have like ownership, even if it were just the route itself, right? Like you can right. touch it and use it. That's like going to a level that I don't think anybody's ever had the authority of in our public lands. Well, and also just from a simple yeah. aspect of like, from your one of like, you've got this valley, you've set these routes, like going back and checking on them because like, you know, just as a personal thing, just as actually like a caring or like, you know, an empathic human being, 
if something failed and someone got hurt, you mean, would you not feel guilty about that? Because, you know, you established a route. Okay, they may have messed up or done something wrong, but if equipment failed because you were not checking back in on it, mm-hmm. you know, would, this, would there be a certain, obviously not legal responsibility, yeah. but a personal responsibility? Like, oh, God, I set that, and someone's really messed did I, did I, did I not, did it get a bad bolt placement? And I think this is something that's going to occur more often now as the technology advances, because there is that rebolt. And that's mostly for those awful, like bits of metal that are bent with a hole in, you know, the really old anchor like bolts, they're being obviously replaced with wave bolts. But once we've got rid of all of them, is there going to be a move to replace compression bolts with wave bolts? Mm-hmm. And then what happens when there's a, a new type of bolt? Are we going to go back in and replace all of those? So, yeah, I mean, at the moment, we're replacing really old, obsolete. I'm not sure that a 12-year-old could fall on this mm-hmm. and it's going to hold. But where do we put the brakes on, you know, of what is gauged to be unsafe and what is simply gauged to be out of date mm-hmm. yeah so that, that's an interesting one I, I wonder how the the ethics of this are going to play out over time yeah i do too and um so for your for, for what you for your rock climbing book is it more stylized as like you know we talked about it a little bit before but is it more stylized as a guidebook or more like you know like a personal journal of like all the places that you've adventured to as like a beginning to intermediate climber yeah yeah kind of both it's like um it's it's broken up by area um uh some like some air some especially some crags i just didn't put in because it was like a crag that was nothing but 11s and 12s with one five eight mm-hmm. you know i'm not covering it just a it was areas that you, you could take a group of people and basically have a good day out getting about at least you know as long as the crag had about eight climbs or more in that moderate area, I tended to include it. And then just flat out omitted 11s, 12s, 13s, and trad. Unless the trad shares anchors with a sport route, because they sometimes do. Yeah. Like, if you, if, you, if you leave this sport route, you can now top rope this crack that is trad. <laughs> so it, it was, it's covered my climbing path through Washington and beyond. And it's kind of pseudo presented in a guidebook format but it's very much it covers you know camping and parking and also things like you know in smith rock if you're rained out there's the gym there's a trampoline weld there's you know or other things you can do like where there's a lake nearby or you know Mm -hmm. jet skiing or this or horse riding or if there's other pastimes in the area or even other nifty shops like mentioning the the Mazama store because you can get breakfast and lunch there mm-hmm. and just like little snippets of information that unless you know them, you know, they, they really enhance the experience. And just, I've, I've tried to include everything that have made the trips fun, in, not just the climbing, but like, uh, for example, in Mazama going up to Cherok and Peregrine, mm-hmm. once you're done, there's Peregrine Lake, which is just awesome to go and jump in and float around in after a day of climbing. It's like guidebooks just generally don't put that information in. But if it, if it, if it was going to lead to you having more fun, I put it in. Mm-hmm. So that's, that, that was pretty much the focus. It's like there are people who want to be, you know, I've got mates 
like one of them, I swear to God, I'm going to break his legs because he just got into 514A. Oh, That's wow. just annoying. It's like, <laughs> dude, like you just, you've only been doing this sport for a few years. Mm-hmm. This is really frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of like, there are people who just want to accomplish, push the grades, become higher and better and do this. And, you know, there's some of us like me who are more of a dilettante. Mm-hmm. I just want to go out and get on some rock and, once I'm done, have some beers around the campfire and talk stupid stories until we like retreat to our tents, redo it the next day and then head home and go back to work. Yeah. So just kind of, you know, it's, it's not a profession, it's an indulgence, but yeah. one that really revitalizes my heart, empties out my brain and it's good for everyday stuff. Cause you know, when, when you get overwhelmed or projects are going squiffy, it's sort of like, Wait a minute. You know, if if I can like do these exposed clients and push my grades, okay. Remember, focus, breathe, get locked in, and it gets you through your day to day life. Like you know, it, it's it, it helps you deal with stress. It helps you deal with fear. It helps you. It, it makes you less jaded to your fellow human being because you've been out there in the wilderness. You've seen the the beauty, the mountains, the like the wilds or the blasted barren deserts and you come back and you're around people and it's sort of like, ah, you cut me off, whatever, dude. Like, I was just in the desert climbing. If you want to cut me off and be a jerk, that's, that's, I know you've been in the city all week, you're wrapped up tight, I'm not. Good on you. Like, just, it's say I find that it it um, helps lower your baseline um, or your baseline tolerance for fear mm-hmm. and also um, confidence among yeah. many other things. Because like y- you know, a lot of our experience is relative. How we feel, you know, when we feel angry, afraid, um, sad, frustrated, happy, right? And those are like, in I find that they're in relation to our work, to our lowest moments in those contexts and those feelings, and our highest moments in those contexts. And mm-hmm. I try to like remind myself, you know, I someone who's like socially anxious and often doesn't speak up for myself in like certain environments, you know, maybe um, professionally, like trying to direct myself in the life that I want to live, as Mm -hmm. opposed to like appeasing um, the people around me and just trying to help them meet what they need um, and getting really wrapped up in that. And that has its place and it helps, you know, Um, but it helps to temper that and to balance that. And in climbing, I've learned that where it's like, if I'm going to say something to you, that's um, really going to disappoint you. And I have a lot of anxiety and fear based around that. And sometimes it's easier to just not say anything at all and just take it on the chin. Right. Whatever. What would be an example of that? So one one thing I I guess is, is like, um, would be if someone asked me, "Hey, hey, do you want like a, a sales and a say or a lead market or lead sales position at this, you know, at a CBD company?" And it's like, "Yeah, I like that stuff. I'm interested in CBD. That's kind of cool." I was really going off in the direction of like graphic design and content creating, um, and I like I had this lifestyle that I wanted in mind, but you guys really need someone in sales. I need some cash. I'll just go do that. And then I can spend like a few years doing that um, kind of aimlessly. 
and and always hoping and wishing for this other kind of lifestyle and to do these other kinds of activities, you know, like to express myself and help other people using different skills. Yeah. And I can continue to do that because I need a job and I need it to work with the schedule of being a dad. And these people need someone to work for them. And they say that they keep paying me and it's enough to get by. It's not what I want. It's not like the, the amount of money that I need to have the, the house to be able to buy a house. I could just live in this little apartment, but I notice I get complacent yeah. and like it goes years and years. It, it'll just wash away on me. And before I realize it, I'm in this job that I didn't really want. Um, living this life that like is okay. But if I could think about it, I don't really want that. I feel like I'm almost like compromise and give up on like a dream or a direction. Yeah. And I could still do those things, but to do those things and go all in on getting pulled in this direction without having the, the mindset and the discipline to continue to work my way towards where I want to go. It's a, uh, it's kind of, it's problematic to me because if I want to do a podcast or if I want to be an author, that requires me to pull myself in my own direction. And mm-hmm actually getting pulled in all these other directions to the degree in which I do fully distracted in what I, what's these people want of me. I'm never going to get these things. I'm never going to have this kind of life. And I used to be afraid of working this corporate job and being a weekend warrior. And I thought that that would be sad because I would, for me, because I wouldn't be able to spend as much time as I want with my son, having these crazy adventures and all these spending the summers with my son. And then I do that and I would work, um, I leave those sales jobs and I get pulled into something else. I like doing martial arts and it's like, here's a teaching role with like the best situation you could ask for if you wanted to be a martial arts teacher. And um, especially with this, with this woman who's like just been teaching for decades and she's just so wise. And it's like, you go into that cause you're like, well, you know, at least it's the schedule that I want. It's not right. the lifestyle that I want, but it's a schedule because I'm going to have to be there Monday through Friday teaching class every day. I can't go off and travel a lot, but it's good money. I like martial arts. My son loves it. It's what these, my son wants. It's what this person needs. And I kind of, I could deal with it. I'd like it. And then I realized that, oh, I just compromised on my dream. Yeah. Right. And when I, when I go and get put into these climbing scenarios, um, I might be leading a route. And it might be alpine and multi-pitch. And I might've got a south route. I might've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Like I might've even made a mistake in that we have to retreat. Right. And th- that's a time where I'm about to disappoint my partner. Mm-hmm. But if I dis, if I, if I follow this fear, this is really easy not to do in this situation, by the way, if I follow this fear, I can actually compound the risk. And I could put our lives in danger or we could at least be benighted and coming down in the dark, which compounds the danger. Yeah. And that's all because I'm afraid of hurting their feelings or whatever. In those moments, quick as a snap, it's so easy to be like, I'm really off route. I don't, we need to, we need to put a retreat plan together. We need to reconvene. We need to go. But in my real day-to-day life, I can, I easily get distracted. And it's not very intense, but that climbing, I believe has helped me reveal aspects of my character that I am able to not consciously apply to my everyday life. So with this martial arts thing, it was much easier to not commit to a very persuasive and 
awesome opportunity. And it was easy to communicate with this person how I felt and what I needed and to be confident in that. I was still very, very scared. I wasn't like tone deaf to my feelings. I was as scared as I was when I face exposure or when I'm needing to retreat, but I was able to be calm and continue to act despite that and not run away and freak out and not fight the monster, you know? Yeah. And I think it's because of these experiences because I get this with my son. It's like, you know, son, you need to eat healthy. Son, you need to, you know, you need to take care of other people and take care of yourself and be a leader and be empathetic to other people, blah, blah. And like, just like it becomes a lecture. And he doesn't understand or internalize those things. And I become this like the um, off of like Charlie Brown or whatever, wah, 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 like the adults <laughs> can't understand them. And I was always like, man, how do I avoid that? And it's like, oh, I just need to explain it better and be cool. And I realized my son rejects a lot of those things. And a lot of other children do too. But I find out when you get into play and you can facilitate an experience where I don't necessarily define exactly what you're going to learn, but I put you into an experience, whether we're backpacking or we're climbing or we're running or we're doing a team building exercise. And then you're going to get whatever you get out of that as a result of your strengths and weaknesses and character. And like that has been very positive for me because it has removed myself from the picture of my son's learning. Yeah. And I'm still there to keep them safe and to connect with them and bond with them. I, I think as a species, that's definitely something that we've inadvertently lost is play like everything's focused on career or this or that or acquiring stuff the ability to just play and i don't mean with your face in your goddamn phone i mean like actually out with friends kicking a ball around throwing a frisbee yeah. going on a hike going for a swim going kayaking i mean as an as an adjunct to climbing we've done uh, rafting scuba snorkel horse riding atv ski doos water skis trike flights trapeze firing machine guns and going glass blowing you know you know all of these other things all of, i know they literally are play. I mean, us, us going to a gun range in Vegas and playing with fully automatic weapons was basically us playing war as yeah, kids bang, or like, etc. You know, uh, glass blowing was basically adult Lego. Yeah. You know, it's, it's play. It's getting together with your friends and just doing something physical and interacting. And, and I think that's, it's important. And I think we're losing sight of that and the importance of it. And if you want to see any representation of that, um, I think it's a good idea to go to a um, trampoline park and watch all the children and their parents and watch the divergence there. And that's what I find so interesting because it's like the trampoline park, I have a problem. And it's always like, my son's like, dad, dad, can you stop doing flips? Can we, come on, let's, let's go jump over the other thing. And I'm going to go jump over the, the thing that you spin around and you try to jump over it and not get tripped by it. And then I'll get like really into it and double jump or I'll push it and mess with them. And he's like, dad, can we leave? Can we go to this other thing? And I'm like, no, this is really fun, man. Like, and I, people will be like, oh, you're just kidding. It's like, like, no, that, that level of play is something that's intrinsic to who we are. And you could like, you can deaden it, but I don't think that, it's never not there, right? You could just repress it and push it down. But I think it's always there, you know? And I see it in like 80 year olds and it's yeah. incredible. Brian Bordeaux is a really good example because that guy is like committed his life to his own particular type of play. Or even to take it even further, like Fred Becky. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, what, how old was he when he finally passed? And he was still climbing every day. Like yeah. it, was, it was just like one minute, like 
you know, just killed over at the very end. There was no hospital or like it was, he did what he played until the last second of his life. So that last grain of sand dropped through that hourglass. And yeah. it's like, you know, we're losing that. I'm so glad you brought up the, the trampoline thing. Cause I guess when we got rained out of Smith and we went to uh, the trampoline ninja assault course thing that they've got there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're taking all this footage of us being stupid and, like, doing dodgeball and uh, basketball. And then we realized that every single person doing it only comes up to my waist. Yeah. All the adults are standing there watching this going, like, because <laughs> it's all like, and, and not with a sense of aghast, a but more sort of like, I didn't know we could do that. And it was all like, you can't get out with your kids. We're just bouncing around. Everything's padded. Mm-hmm. No one's yeah. getting hurt. And it was like, there were the ninja assault courses that we were trying and like, the you know, the laser maze. And it was like, oh, that's cool. you know, there's no rule to say that you can't get out here with your kid and bounce around. Yeah. And it was like, it's the adults area and the kids were playing. It was like, you're wearing socks too. Get out on the mat. Have some yeah. fun. Like, Personally, I would prefer a worthy opponent in the gladiator. Pit. Yeah. Because after I knocked over my third small child, I was like, I'm just going to miss and let one knock me off because I'm starting to feel bad now. <laughs> so this is this this would happen with um, I worked with emotionally. I used to work with emotionally and behaviorally delayed children in like a um, specialized like public school. And you do that all the time. And where it's like I would have my my martial art, like one of my best friends, he's a, a martial or jujitsu teacher. And we would like, we're like, used to be like really intense training partners. And then we would try to, we're behavior technicians with these children. So we would just like basically help them um, help role model be, uh, like appropriate behavior. And also just like how, how to conduct yourself. Right. And so a lot of the things that we would do is, which was very unique to like a certain group of us, we would always be playing with the kids and that's what I'll always be waiting for. And we'd go out though and you do like, we would go, I would teach them how to like run like longer, long distances. Um, and then we would go like rollerblading as well on like the skating rinks. And that was something that would happen all the time, which is like, sure, when I go to the trampoline park, I have to like do exactly what you do with the gladiator thing with my son. And so does my friend Alfie. Cause we, whenever we do something, even if it's a Nerf gun war for like a birthday, it's like, we're getting really into this. We got to like <laughs> temper it a little bit, but with the kids who um, have the struggle with emotional and behavioral, you know, regulation and, and how they conduct themselves. It's like, that's all the time. And when you would take like a loop and it would be like a half mile loop and I would run around the half mile loop and I had to figure out a way, by the way, jujitsu teaches you this really well, just people. I had to figure out a way how to try hard enough that they would be challenged but not try so hard that they felt like the challenge was impossible to surmount. But I couldn't give in. I couldn't, I could not measure, measure how hard to try based off of their reaction because they don't, they always want to win. They all like the, like most of the, I don't want to generalize, but it's, it's pretty consistent. It's like, no, I'm winning or your game sucks and you can go to fucking hell. (laughs) Okay, man. And what we get in is, is like in jujitsu, um, you jujitsu, like martial arts is something that like really I find teaches you people this really well, which is like, if you patronize me and you let me win, I will never get better because the way you are acting, I'm already a master because it doesn't take any proficiency. I, or I don't have to improve to beat you. So therefore I will never improve. 
Yeah. And it requires this person to try to win as well or give you resistance and not just let you succeed. And so you find in these situations that kindness and, and compassion is not just allowing someone to succeed. And it's not, um, it's not resisting their attempt to succeed entirely. But it's mm. this like weird sweet spot. And yeah. the reason why I get this to give context in jujitsu is, is like I'm a 160 pound man and I will go against, you know, a um, 120 pound woman, right? I could do this with kids and, you know, smaller guys, bigger guys too. But with that 120 pound woman, if she is my skill level or below, or it really kind of doesn't matter. It's, yeah, my skill level or below or usually below my skill level, but it's like my physicality is going to limit their technical ability. And it's not because the technique doesn't work. It's that they have not learned how to use that technique to the high degree to overcome my physicality. So my strength will limit some of what they've learned to do. And if I shut them down too much, they won't be able to get anything. And they're just going to be underneath a, you know, a stronger man and right. not be able to move. And if they could learn techniques there, like eventually there's jujitsu techniques where in several where you can overcome someone who's way stronger and bigger than you, but they might not know those. So now they get to spend like three months, you know, just losing all the time and I'm winning all the time. That doesn't really do much for me past like the first week. Right. And the other one is, is that if I were to see you and I'm like, oh, you know, you're a girl or, oh, I don't want to use my physicality. I don't want to be rude or any of those things, whatever it is, right? You could well-intentioned or not. And that person's just like, you're falling over. They could like blow on you and you'd fall over. And they think that they're doing a good job. And then they right. go and apply that technique to, to a real world situation to where, not a real world, but a real game to where my job is like, we're going to grapple. Whoever taps loses. That's mm -hmm. it. I'm going to hundred percent going to try to get my thing. You are going to get yours a hundred percent too. And then what happens is she isn't able, it doesn't work because all the techniques she was working against me was a non-resisting opponent and I've patronized her. So yeah. I yeah. haven't done anybody a service either which way, but you find out there's this middle zone. Okay. And you have this middle zone to where you're like, you ask the person, Hey, did I, did I use too much of my physicality? Did I use not enough of it? Like some feedback. And that's a hard thing to do with people when you play a game. Did I push the boundaries too far or did I not push them enough? Because usually we don't debrief. We just go away. So, yeah. and then I'm going to add another layer to it just to finish it off is that there's, there's that. And then there's this, that woman that I was learning martial arts from um, Cindy Hales. She's like, she weighs less than I do. And you know, she's, she's a woman and her physicality is, is like, she's not as strong as I am. Right. But I can't really do anything to beat her. And like, and, and so it, it becomes this thing where now the roles are reversed. Is this woman who is like so technically advanced, she's doing this on a day in and day out, but she's dealing with the opposite. Imagine 130 pound, I think she's 130 pounds, um, woman beating up like 250 pound men. And 250 pound yeah. men that like, this isn't how the community is normally, but there's a demo, small demographic where it's like, you know, I'm a strong man. I can kick anyone's ass. And it's like, dude, you hear that 130 pound woman who kicked my ass? Like, oh my gosh, she's just so great. And like having to deal with that though, because then people treat you differently and all these other things. So you're like, I find this like martial arts, um, this like intense experience of like 
how we draw the boundaries between each other. Like what's too far and what's not far enough. What's strong, what's weak. Like, you know, how do you earn respect? How do you treat other people? And it's all encapsulated in the play. Did you ever see that, that, you know, it's black and white footage of that like eight-year-old Japanese judo champion? Oh, wow. A giant dude storming him and he would just like, just do these like matrix style weaves and they'd just go flying. Oh, wow. Yeah, just type in like a Japanese judo champ, black and white, eight-year-old or something like that. The footage is like, this is made up. And, you know, because you see him like, the big guy will lunge and he would just suddenly like drop and then they would just flip over his back. And it was just like, what? It was like, and these were all black belts, judo. And he was just, he mopped, they they would come out one at a time and he would just mop the floor with every one of them. And it was just, again, the beauty of technique. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, what is that sweet spot between letting like crushing someone mm-hmm. and then just not challenging them. Mm-hmm. And I think I was very fortunate because it resonates with me particularly well because uh, the a, a dude, just as I was starting to head outside, there was a little group of three of us. And one of them was, uh, John was a former um, uh, submarine commander. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, can't remember the one who's just beneath the captain, the first officer, or oh, like uh, the first mate. Yeah, the first mate, or whatever. And he, he was. Pre- I couldn't have wanted a better climbing, almost climbing mentor, because he really could gauge that well, having had to deal with people in a claustrophobic tin can underneath Arctic ice, worrying about Russian subs, and we're not coming up for air in a good couple of months. And it's sort of like, so he was great at spotting and to, you know, you can't push someone too far and you can't not have them because we need everyone at their most inspired and most best. We are in a Cold War situation under the Arctic. Yeah. And so when we were climbing, you know, you get that insipid, come on, you've got this, trust your feet. That's not, shut up. You're not inspiring anybody. And, but then there's someone who's ragging on you and you're just getting more and more spooked. Mm-hmm. But then you know someone who is like, you know, it gives you like, it's okay if you want to back off or, you know, I, I think you can do it. Just just try it again. And you get that little bit of extra wind and you make mm-hmm. it. And I think he was golden at consistently finding that juicy spot in the middle where it wasn't, Bruce, why don't you give up and take up knitting? You suck. And like... <laughs> Just do it, you pussy. Like, or, or just yeah. like, you know, or getting you on a five six and going, "Wow, you crushed that! Aren't you the best ever?" Yeah. And I was like, please give me a break. And so he was really good at inspiring me to stay, you know, almost out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But you know, each time you do that, it broadens it just that little more. I thought yeah. I was very, very lucky to have that. And the funny thing is that you mentioned that about the comfort zone and like. The the interesting thing is is that's actually how uh, phys- the physical side of it well it works too because that's how hypertrophy works. <laughs> it's weird because like psychologically you find it's a similar mechanism that it is physically because you can like you your body will adapt to incremental stress and so will you psychologically where and you see this even reflected in therapy with people who are like afraid of the water right? And that's exposure therapy. And what they do is, is incrementally, they'll expose them to the stress so that they are able to adapt and become comfortable in, in the stress. And you, that's an extreme state. 
And you could see that we talked about it with exposure. But if you want to do if you want to deadlift, like, you know, a certain amount of pounds, sure, relative to you that or there's an upper limit. But that distance between where you are and that upper limit, there's always distance and there's always room for incremental improvement. And it's really weird because if you're like, I'm afraid of heights, I'm afraid to talk to people. Um, I'm, you know, I can't lift a hundred and I can't bench press 150 pounds. There's, there's like one way to all of those things. And it's like, take your goal or take this thing that you can't do define the you know, the minimal viable amount of steps and go to the first one. That's in relation to where you're starting from. And it's just the oddest thing that like, I was really socially anxious and I still can be at times. But the thing that helped me with that is slow incremental exposure to talking in a one-on-one situation or in a group situation. And then over time, it's like, oh, wow, I could have like, I might be a little bit afraid to talk to people sometimes, but I'm genuinely excited to talk to people. I feel some sense of confidence, at least some of the time, more than I did before. And, and I'm no, like, I'm not special. I'm not unique, you know, in that sense. I just like spent time doing something. Right. Weird. Your body will change because of that. And so will your mind. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. No, no. I mean, I was, um, I had some pretty bad dental experiences in England and ended up with some pretty serious PTSD. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I came to the States, it was sort of like, okay, I, I've been neglecting my teeth for years because I, I would just break out in a sweat at the thought of them doing stuff to me. Oh, yeah. And so I went to a dentist, tried to explain, he did it. I just had a complete panic attack, elbowed him in the nose, ran away, puked, Ooh. collapsed in the floor, crying, peeing, everything. Mm-hmm. And he comes up, he goes, may I recommend the dental fears clinic at UW? And I was in there for four years and it was a lot of it was the first bunch of it was speaking with a shrink going through what caused all of these traumas. And then slowly they would get you in there and they would like numb you. They would do the topical numbing and all the rest of it. And they would very gently start doing it and back off. And the shrink was there with you all the time. And then they'd do a bit more. And then the shrink, you know, he was there less and less as they slowly, slowly progressed like a tooth at a time because you just couldn't take it. You know, you would try and talk yourself down. And, you know, again, he used rock climbing, like, you know, like you would on a roof, focus, keep calm, et cetera. And that, that really helped. And, you know, it was a tooth at a time and then it was a quadrant at a time. And like you said, it was incremental steps to help overcome this like absolutely irrational, terrifying fear from previous traumas. So yeah, exposure, you know, when you are truly afraid of something, you know, don't just chuck you in at the deep end. Like if you're afraid of spiders, I'm going to pour a bucket of them over you and just say, get over it. It's just sort of like, you know, see a little one from afar and then a little closer and then like, you know, just incremental steps to help help you adjust and the weirdest thing is is that i was doing a physical or a podcast with a physical therapist and we're talking about like injuries and stuff and mainly acute injuries is you know what causes acute injuries is exposure to stress that is way outside of your ability your body's ability to manage it and that causes injury and that's what i always think to people too it's like well you take anything you know i want to learn something and the success rate for learning something kind of low but if you're like well you want to do yoga and it's like i'm gonna start one hour yoga classes three days a week and it's like 
you should start 10 minute yoga classes three days a week <laughs> because you're not gonna it's not like you're gonna break something or you know get injured and so you're not gonna be psychologically traumatized in this context but like probably not gonna be very successful and yeah. I don't want to put you down or anything like that. It's just like, you just look at it. And it's so interesting because the physical is visceral. So it's like, oh yeah, that would obviously cause injury. But if you were to, you know, transpose that over to all these other things, you perhaps can see the things that we don't often see when we're going to try something out. It's like, yeah. oh, I'm ramping this up too far. And I've learned that even in climbing, you know, I've like, relative to me, I was trying to apply myself um, and measure my progress um, in relationship to how other people were progressing. Mm. And I wasn't using an intrinsic, you know, or I haven't found out until, you know, like a year or so ago, an intrinsic way to judge that for my own self and my own personal progress. Um, and it would like, I put myself in some like very uncomfortable, wild and like traumatic and not like, you know, emotionally traumatic, but like, my love of rock climbing traumatic. That's how I would put that to where I would have like some disdain and I don't have disdain for rock climbing. It's just that season might've been mm -hmm. fucked for the half for the last half of the year. Cause I was doing shit. Like I'm like, yeah, my comfort level should be this great and this much exposure right. and I could do this. And then I do it and I keep doing it. And I'm like, man, this is really hard and this is sucks. And this is scary. And now I'm like, I want to go run for the rest of the season. <laughs> no wonder, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, we got back from a, a trip to Utah and I was, I had a great time, but there was a certain sense of like, oh man, because I didn't lead once. I just couldn't, I couldn't, they, I was out of shape, not out of shape, but out of lead shape. Because yeah. The gyms have been closed and it wasn't that I had plummeted grades. I just couldn't get my, my confidence back. And I had a great time, but there was that sense of disappointment in myself that I couldn't. And the other one that like the gyms have just reopened so many people are getting injured because they're going back in. Yeah, I'm going to get back on that. And then they're like wrenching this or tearing that. And it's like, you have to, it's having to apply so much self-control. It's like, okay, idiot, you haven't climbed it in a gym for like three months now, do some sevens and eights and we're slowly going to work our way up. It's sort yeah. of like, oh, I remember this 10 minus from last because they haven't changed out the roots. Mm -hmm. So I remember this, this was easy. Don't touch it. You haven't been doing this for a while. A little self-control. <laughs> yeah. Or just think it's like the climbing season's going to come in, okay? What's more important, crushing the stuff in the gym that you were doing a few months ago or slowly building yourself back up so you can enjoy the outdoors when it comes? And it's funny because usually you're caught up in like, you know, I want to get to this place and you have a lot of excitement to get to this, you know, this like goal or, or aim in your mind. And you're like, that usually comes out of a place of like love and an honest like, desire to prog progress but the funny thing is is that if that feeling and that decision is really easy for you to make the most efficient and effective decision is to not do it because it's too easy because <laughs> it's so easy you're gonna injure yourself like isn't that interesting we're like yeah. if it's really easy to go out there and you know like crush not like you're oh i'm feeling good because you know and i'm gonna go send my project but like, if you're just like, yeah, I'm going to put all this enthusiasm into this. It's like, oh, that came a little too easy to you. You might want to tone that down a little bit. Your body might not follow that. Like <laughs> your mind's saying that, but maybe not your body. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've got to keep that in mind. Like, you know, I turned 50 in September. Mm -hmm. And so everyone said, come on, what is the location that you want to go to? It's like, 
okay, so I asked around and I, I think maybe depending on if the world cooperates, but hopefully heading out to Greece and oh. doing that, those ones out on the islands that look really, really amazing. Yeah. And it's sort of like, so ex- I've got to remember exactly what you just said. Like, you know, this climbing season, keep Greece out of my mind because, you know, okay, I need to work on stamina and crushing it and doing this. And when I get the Greece, I'm going to climb everything. And it's like, no, gradual steps, stay focused, enjoy it, stay in shape. And when you get there, have fun. Yeah, and then you'll really enjoy it and you'll really be yeah. ready and open for it, right? All right. Now, I do want to be respectful of your time. Oh, yeah. um, but I do, uh, so I wanted to ask something because they're about the guidebook and I want to be respectful to you, but like, there seems to be like somewhat of controversy there. Did you want to talk about that or no? Um, I'm in the process of trying to resolve it. Yeah. Um, and it, I just say that not for, for, I say that because I just want to, I like to understand these things and I, and I'm explaining this for you and then also for like the audience too, because like the accessibility, um, I know the printing process, you know, if you're not doing you can do it through like Amazon, you know, and, and print mm-hmm. through there, but you don't really make a bunch of money that way. Right. Uh, or you don't really make much money at all, even though it's hard to make money as it is through these things. Oh, this um, is definitely not making any. And that's, and that's what I am getting to, but I, I see that like, there's the, there's an accessibility to do these things and it's, it's how you do it. Right. And then it's like, what are some um, obstacles and challenges that somebody who's creating a book, right? In the rock climbing, you know, aspect, and then just in general, like what are they bumping up against and things like that? So I think this is like a lot of value for that. And then I'm also genuinely curious on like what's going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, there, there, there is that sense that you should only be doing a guidebook if you're the person who created all the roads, uh-huh. you know, the, only the person who established it, but they have a very myopic opinion. They are, they are generally very, very good climbers. I mean, for the fact that they can actually hang off of a wall and be drilling when I can barely hold on to the bloody thing, you know, it, it, they don't, I, I don't think necessarily they have, you know, they're not, they're not providing beta and information that is, they are intimately familiar with each of these routes. Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't climbed it from an outside perspective or, or a low level person's perspective. And um, with my book having, or my bookstroke journal having such a, a very narrow focus, you know, I, I, I freely acknowledge the other guidebooks right on the first page. I say, you know, all the information on the people who've done it, on the people who established it. There are online sources and amazing guidebooks. And I, and I, you know, in it, I specifically say, I encourage you to go out and get them because you'll be supporting these people, you know, rewarding them for all their years of diligence and effort. And, you know, if I included all that information, the thing would be this thick. You're actually going to get a hernia to, you know, it's going to be heavier than your 70 meter rope. So I wanted to focus specifically on this is just a dilettante pamphlet to help new people with some information. And if you get into it and if you really start enjoying it, grab those other guidebooks, help those guys out. And I also list that there are climbing coalitions and local organizations. And this is an amazing sport. Seriously consider contributing to those places because these people are out there, they're setting routes. And I think that needs to be, you know, it's amazing. They need to be helped. I'm hoping to start doing some establishment of my own, you know, 
because I'm out there climbing routes all the time. Uh, you know, I've set a couple here and there as my practice ones. And, you know, we started looking around in the woods and we're going to start finding some other crags and we're going to start me, the, the group that we've established, we're all going to get together and start like, like crushing them out ourselves. I just, I don't think it's helpful that you have to be a bolt setter to do it. You have to be one of the old guard to do it. You have to have approval from every single person who's ever set a route to even be able to talk about it. You know, I'm not, I'm not taking over from other guidebooks. I'm culling a very, very small piece of them and presenting them for people who are low level climbers who need that little bit more information, little bit more assistance. They don't know where to camp. They don't know where to park. The guidebooks don't provide that information. And so, you know, there's impact, there's damage. Like if they go to a place and they don't know where to park, they're just parking on the side of the road, they're littering, they're doing this, they're, they're damaging trails. You know, I feel that providing that information is important, especially to, to, to people who aren't as familiar with the outside. So, you know, it, it's hard because like, like we've been discussing that the climbing community is old. It's very entrenched. It reminds me of just back home in England. There's the, the dumb thing is the cleat, the word that I've always hated. It's sort of like, you know, you need to do this in order to do this because that's the way it is and always shall be. And if you try and transgress against it, like you said, like you pointed out that mm -hmm. you need the forms, you need the permission, etc. But America's a lot more free. Washington is a lot more huge. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always run into it in other aspects of my life. Like, um, this is a little tangent, but there was a live role-playing company in Chislehurst that I used to go to, and it was hundreds of miles of underground caves. Oh. And it started off as a Roman flint mine. It was expanded in World War II. It was expanded with mushroom farms. And it's just, wow. you go down there, and it's basically live D&D. &D, and you run around with your characters and you're sort of beating on each other. And That's kind of cool. It, it was a blast. And everybody loved it. But there was a very established clique of the old school players. And they were very much in charge. And they kind of made it not fun for everybody. Because they were the guys who've been here since the start. And you need to do it our way. And so we found a loophole where if you created your own guild, you could actually basically have your own pr private adventures. And oh, we wow. were having fun. We didn't have, like, they were doing their thing, their high-level crush. It felt very climbing. They're doing their high-level crushing it. All they're focused on is getting grades and becoming powerful and doing all this other stuff. And we just wanted to have fun. We weren't looking to become masters. We weren't looking to kill 514s, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So... <clears throat> <clears throat> we started our own little guilds and just started playing on our own out of their way. But then people started hearing about it and they wanted to join us. Yeah, we would like to have fun too. And it kept occurring and occurring and we were suddenly starting to get kind of big. We made it, we made it casual, just anybody could join us and have fun. But then that group of the older ones, they, they didn't like that we were doing that. And so they would like complain to the establishment and the, the, the administration and they would find ways to get onto our adventure and just wipe us all out, mm -hmm. just shut wow. us down. And we would just, you know what, we'll start different characters and we'll do it all over again. I get, it's, it's always been, I don't like 
that this this isn't for you. This is for people who've been doing this for a long time. This is us. You ain't it. And I've heard a lot of very disparaging talk about Seattle climbers and all these. And just I, people referring to you as gumbies and newbies and like, you know, dude, stay in the 38. You don't belong out here. And it's mm-hmm. like, dude, I'm not stealing your, I'm not stealing information. This, this is on public land. You know, there's never, a, I mean, 38 and Vantage will always be packed. Other areas never get that crowded. I mean, I think it's an irrational fear. I can understand that that they don't want, they don't, they would like to go back in time, but unfortunately that can't happen. There are more climbers than ever. The climbing gyms are spewing out more people that want to go outdoors. And, you know, I think there's room for everybody. I think that there's something that's interesting about what you're talking about in the sense of like the perceived other um Mm. and what or the imagined other really like a group of um of people that that like represent a narrative right where you like you have a narrative you have pretense and like who who they are right and i'm not supposing that anybody necessarily feels this way in any particular community here but like kind of what you're talking about is that sense of other where like you know um I guess I'll, I'll go off on like a tangent. There's this, there's a thing that there was a taxi driver and the taxi driver was, um, was Muslim. And then the, the guy in the back was this white dude and Muslim was, um, was talking about, um, you know, like they're having a conversation with the guy in the back and they develop like a really good, you know, um, friendship or, or a good rapport. Right. And they're like laughing. And he's like, Oh, I just, you're so cool, man. Like, if you ever need anything, you know, here's my number. And he's like, Yeah, dude, absolutely. Thank you. I'll be sure to call you if I need a ride and things like that. And then they're like getting to talk. And he was saying, like, Oh, yeah, you know, those like gay people. And he's just like, They're like, the gay people are, um, you know, just uh, just talked about this whole thing. It's so flamboyant and the way they express themselves. And it's just like, it's just all in your face. And like, gosh, they're just, they're, and they're like, they're bad. And, and from his perspective, and he had like all this narrative and this, like this, this thinking behind it. Right. Uh-huh. And, and then the guy in the back, like they carry out this conversation. He kind of lets, continues it forth. And, um, and then as he gets to the end of the ride, the guy's like, Oh man, you're just, you're really cool. And like, I appreciate that. And you know, he's got the number and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm gay. Right. And he's like, yeah, but like, you're different though. You're like really cool. And he's like, no, not really. Like you'd be surprised if you think I'm cool. You probably think a lot of my friends are pretty cool too. Cause it's like, you know, like our sexuality is not all in your face or anything like that. We're just people. Um, and what gets lost in this current culture, I think, right. I mean, not to go into like a political thing, but that's like, yeah, people are learning to accept, you know, people who have um, different uh, sexual, um, you know, disposition than you, right? Yeah. If you're homosexual, bisexual, all these things, right? It's like, uh, we're we're learning that, you know, if you you feel differently about who you want to have sex with, that has no indication of your character and whether or not I'd like you. And and also, well, just one parenthetically, I mean, even in your case, in the 80s, single parents were basically Satan himself. Yeah. You, know, you know, single parenthood was demonized. You know, and the, the, the fact that, like, gay marriage or... You know, remember the, the satanic panic with Dungeons and Dragons and uh, Tipper Gore wanted to ban heavy metal yeah. because it was corrupting our kids. It's sort of like, eventually you realize that this isn't... 
darkness and evil taking over. We're just changing to a different mentality, a different way of doing things. But I don't. I, but at the same time, I think what's been lost, what what might be lost, and at least our our culture as it's presented in media, is that it's those things in particular that that was 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 why it's like you could say oh you're xenophobic how dare you like have nationalistic tendencies and afraid of other people from other countries oh you're you're uh, afraid of people who who want to have sex with men like these things like how could you and it's like no you're like talking about specifics because yeah. what happened and i think in our culture is is that now you have people who are very accepting right and i'm not not everybody but there's a group of people, at least represented in our media, who are very accepting, that are very intolerant of a whole of another group of other, whether it's right. like corporate and government, and I, they all have everything has their problems. And I'm not saying you tolerate everything, but like, do you, do you see what I mean? Where like yeah. this yeah. thing that at first was like, hey, we're we're advocating for like these really like ideas that are accepting and loving of each other, and we get to be closer, and we get to um, we get to dissolve these barriers in between us as human beings, and then it like somehow reared its head and did the same thing to a whole nother group and now right. that's like seeing the group and it group is like or villainizing another group and condemning it with like absolute emotional vigor and radicalization to the right. point that it's dissolving the original notions that mm. had created our new standard of culture right? Our new right. acceptance of other things. And I think it's getting lost that no matter what you do, that whoever you're not is not in your community or ideas in groups of people that you do not spend time around, you're going to have some sort of prejudice because is it's like, it's a natural thing to have a prejudice, whether good or bad. You could say yeah. gay people are just like really nice and like, you know, like I could pretending to be somebody else. This could be a nice thing, but it's still a prejudice. Gay people yeah. are just really nice. So fun to hang out with. Great to be social. And it's like, that's still a prejudice. You say like white people are like, you know, like have this like power structure held over their people and white people are privileged. And it's like, that's a prejudice too. And it's less of a problem of if your prejudice is positive in your opinion or destructive, it's more of a problem that, like you're identifying with your prejudice, right? Before and not taking the time to get to know this individual. But because right. I think prejudice does have its place in that if you have like a country, I can't spend my time researching every country or every group of people to, defig to figure out exactly who they are so that I, you know, I know them. Right. But our brains though, it's like, Oh, I see that person, right? And they're dressed a certain way. They have tattoos or, you know, I see someone who's a climber and I'll immediate is your brain like, okay, I think I know who they are. And right. then if you take the time to have that beautiful one-on-one, -on -one, you know, experience or a little small group experience, then you, this is the part that I hope is that you don't cling to your identification so much that you can like the taxi driver, have a conversation with someone that you happen to be able to take the time to have a conversation with and get to know them for who they are. I think that actually happened. Um, just a taxi driver story. It was very similar, but Chuck Palahniuk, the one who wrote Fight Club. Uh huh. I think something very similar happened to him. Oh. You know, he's a, he's a wicked, ripped, like rough-looking dude. Yeah. And the taxi driver was identifying him as like as a, as a dude. Uh -huh. We were talking about this, and he was like, Ah, the goddamn F's, and he's like, he's like, 
you do know I'm married to a man, right? And it was sort of like, and it, you know, you've got this wall of muscle on the back seat. And I think the taxi driver, like, dropped the subject quickly. Yeah, yeah. But no, I, I, I totally agree. I think, and I think uh, social media has definitely exposed this, this echo, echo chamber mm-hmm. where you're, you're in your own little bubble of friends and um, you just circle, circ- circulate in there. And I think those prejudices... Uh, spread easily, especially in echo chambers. And yeah, I, I just think it's like just getting out and mingling with other people and other types of people. Like, well, you know, we've had like five thirteen climbers come out with us who were just mm-hmm. focused on crushing it. And, you know, we still made sh- ensure they had a good time. Yeah. We've had people from East side, West side, like, and, you know, Seattle, we've got people from all over the world, Russia, India, like uh, Japan, like, you know, it, it's very multi multicultural. So we're dealing with a lot of, um, uh, culture and race and ethnicities and it really broadens your mind. And you realize that, especially when you're in a group, it's like not to pour those like sappy Benetton adverts, but mm-hmm. like, you know, we're all here together just to enjoy rock, Yeah. you know? And, you know, I think that is, that's far more important than just trying to, I don't mean it in a bad way, but kind of cling to the past. Yeah. That this is, the, this is for us sort of, you know, the, 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 you know, and, and I, all power to them, like the, 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 the real rock climbers, because I know I ain't one of them. Like, <laughs> I mean, the ones who are there dangling by a couple of fingertips and, and all the rest of it. I mean, they're, they're inspirations. You know, there's something to try and achieve toward. But, yeah, I, I just think, um, I think climbing is moving on. And, yeah, I mean, with anything that moves on. Like, you know, I was a writer. My writing career died because none of my publishers, I am not, what is this, e- e-book? Mm-hmm. I'm not, do- like, I, I like books, Mo- you know, solid books. I, I want a bookshelf of books. Mm-hmm. And they just wouldn't make that concession oh, that yeah. this was a new way of doing things. And, and like with, with e-book, anybody can speak. Anybody mm-hmm. can say their thing. Anybody can put pen to paper. You didn't have to go through editors. You didn't have to. And it meant that there was a lot more background noise. But they wouldn't make the change. And so most of my publishers went under. And that's why I ended up going back to school and changing careers. Because I was doing great as a writer. But the industry just dug its heels in and said, this ebook, it is ebook online thing will fade, and everyone will be back reading hard copy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that <laughs> didn't work. <laughs> and where can um, people check out your Kickstarter and everything else, Bruce? Oh, uh, the Kickstarter is just type in "Let's Rock Washington." Um, I haven't checked it for a little bit, but apparently, I'm I'm near the goal. Um, the goal was just to try and facilitate uh, maybe making 200 copies and then, um, yeah, I'll probably like sell them out of the back of my car. if Because, you know, um, it's very easy when you try and put it on a online forum. You know, all it takes is one person or two people to be offended and mm-hmm. the post gets pulled. Yeah. You know, it's, it, and it's nothing to do with even the admins or anything. It's, you know, we live in a very um, cancel culture, easily offended. And, you know, um, books have been pulled from bookstores because yeah. these people have written in or, 
you know, everyone's very worried about causing controversy. So, you know, I'll try and put it on on some Facebook pages. If, if the Kickstarter succeeds, I'll try and put it on there. And if not, I'll probably, during my meetups, just be selling them out of the back of my car. So, yeah, that's where I yeah. find it. It's interesting about, like, I'm somebody who's – like, I don't really, I don't advocate cancel culture. And I think that if anything's problematic, it's like, it's like what we were talking about before. It's you go out and you do something, you go climb and then a problem arises. Like I'm afraid, I'm not confident leading this, or I'm afraid of exposure. or I can't route find to get to the base. And I think actually putting awareness to those things, right. And those, those events happening are, that's where we learn the most. And so right. that, and that's, so that's what I was getting with the, the other and like, w- whether you disagree with people, with people make mistakes, like there's, there's a thing that I think we like, it's weird and I'll make it quick. Sorry. That like before you'd want, you would, you would do something because you believe in it. Right. And you believe in the goal. So it's worth stepping outside of, of that zone and pushing against the norm. And we have that like cultural and societally, but I think it's that that it's less about that it's less about progressing towards a certain ide like ideological um place right and no criticism there but i think it's more about the reality of the process the process that there's going to be people out there that are going to bring out ideas or do things that people are going to disagree with or cause controversy or make people feel uncomfortable and instead of making those go away for whatever reason right even if you agree or disagree with it, there is a way to bring this into the light of the of a broader community or small one and to gain more information from this. Yeah. You, you know what I mean by that? Like, yeah, it's yeah, like totally. all yeah. this and you even see with our society politically on both sides. Once again, it's like you can learn a lot from those things and not identifying and participating in those things and condoning them. But at the same time, not trying to reject them and say that I am better than that and that if i were to have a society or if i were to be in charge of this climbing thing then that would never happen but the reality is that that is part of life and that some people become really radicalized in the thing that they're going for whether it's in like the way that they believe that the climbing community should be or if what you want to put out there right and it's about how you have that interaction there and that's where i learn a lot from you how you respond to these things how you create this content and then how other people in the community respond to it right and that's where i learn and rather than trying to brush that under the rug because it's really uncomfortable and confusing yeah. um it's more interesting for me to like kind of draw it out and to look at it so that yeah. i could like yeah. learn from that in that way you know yeah and i mean especially because i feel that this project should be even less controversial because it's basically it's a guide like i don't mean to put it in such blunt terms it's a guidebook for people who suck <laughs> like me like i'm not going to be an 11 climber it's like this is specifically a guidebook for those of us who are not great at it like <laughs> so it's like it's not like you know i'm, I'm breaking like and giving away world record stuff or like you know stuff that you know someone's been working on the first five what's the highest grade at the moment now it's <laughs> It's like 515 something or other. It's not like someone was working on the world's first 515D and then someone poaches 16A. Yeah. You know, that that is that's despicable. It's like, you know, this is someone trying to push forward the limits 
of what this sport is capable of. But to but doing a book that embraces the literal bottom of the pile, mm-hmm. like where we all begin, you know, I, I feel that you know it shouldn't. It should. I can understand. It's just. Um, uh, it's it's as as I've bemoaned before. This isn't the done thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a. I'm not a roots. Well, I, I've I've bolted two roots. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not a high level climber. I haven't spent years in the community and been mentored by these people. I'm just someone who takes out a load of people. Every I had this idea. Everyone who's heard this idea was like, I would love that. That would be absolutely brilliant. You should do it. And you know, for seven years of hundreds and hundreds of people saying. I mean, this was the thing. I was at the gym last night and I was there and I'm just about to leave and this dude comes up to me and he goes, are you Bruce? And I was like, here we go. It's coming, isn't it? It, This is where it starts. And he goes, I was on the meetup with you like a couple of years ago. Are you still doing that book? Yeah, yeah, it just came out on Kickstarter. What's it called? I'd like to, and you know, people are still, they know every, I explained, this is what the book's going to be about. This is what he's going to focus on. You know, I'm not including this, not including that. I want to give advice to keep people safe, how to not screw up trails or parking or anything else. And like people really responded to it. And then as soon as it was sort of like, oh, Bruce, by the way, you've got no job and you don't even have to actually look for work for the next few months because of COVID. Time to like actually start putting this together. Like put my, uh, the same thing as as I got dragged into being an organizer. It was put your money where your mouth is. You've been talking about this stupid book for all this time. People are actually going to be looking forward to stepping out after a year of lockdown and death and misery and politics and rioting and all this other stuff that's gone on. And mm-hmm. it's sort of like just helping people put a smile on their face. You know, yeah. I, I don't I don't find that a controversy. I like that. I really appreciate that, Bruce. No, no worries. It's grand. I'm yeah. delighted to talk to you. Yeah, this is been yeah. one of the longest conversations I've had in weeks because you oh, know, really? unemployed and like you know, at the gym, it's hard to to talk with your mask on and everything. Oh. So <laughs> that's why I value these conversations so much, especially in the past year with not being able to have as many like long for just not spending long periods of time around a bunch of other people, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's actually been the hardest. It's like, you know, I, I was always doing one meetup every weekend. You know, it would be like a day trip, and then a- Woo. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about um, Bruce's uh, rock climbing book, you can find the links to it and his Kickstarter in the show notes, um, or becominghumanpodcast.com. dot com. And if you also would like to see some of the counterpoints to um, to to Bruce's uh, book, you can find some of those links as well. I just want to be representative of like the full perspective. Um, and I really appreciate and admire Bruce's um, his creativity in his writing and all of that passion that he has in trying to create a project, you know, creating a project is a beautiful thing, especially when you're, you love it so much and you love to share it with other people. Um, however, it's, it's a dicey thing, you know, it's fraught with peril and it takes a lot of care and consideration when you're doing it. And there's no opinion from my part, which way, 
about it, you know, on one end or the other. But I'd rather just give a platform for for the both of the perspectives. Um, and I think that's really important so that you guys can figure out how you feel about it. Um, and that can help shape your own worldview and how you will want to treat other people and have them treat you. Um, and also what you would do, what you would consider when you're having a creative project. This world's so damn complicated. And like, it's simple that we want to be fed, clothed, loved, you know, but it's complicated in the ways that those things manifest and how we meet those needs and the nuances that that lie in its wake. And like, you know, especially for somebody like myself where it's like I'm a very much of an outsider perspective in a lot of ways in these communities and it's hard for that not to interfere with how I act. It's hard for not hard for my my um, desire to be accepted and loved or um, to appease other people, for instance, like not influence my behavior. It's hard for my fear of failure to not influence my behavior. But the best I could do is fucking try and be honest with myself, be honest with other people when I see them fuck up, but also have some sort of compassion and like a firm compassion. It's so damn complicated, but I think that's the fun of it. That's the art. It's like the never ending game. You know, there's, there's so much like patterning that we can do of life and interpreting, you know, the people who've come, the lessons from the people who've come before us. But at the end of it, it's like, there's always new shit to learn. Just never gets old. <laughs> we get old, but it never gets old. <sighs> Anyways, I love you guys. I appreciate you listening to this episode. And I'm going to play you out with a song called Rejoice by AJJ. If you want to watch the video, you can find it in the show notes or becominghumanpodcast.com. Rejoice. Have a good week. Bye. One, two, three, four. Rejoice. Rejoice, God's ears are stitches. Oh, rejoice. His eyes are big axes. Oh, rejoice. His arms are burning witches Oh, rejoice His hands perform hexes Rejoice despite the fact This world will hurt you And rejoice despite the fact This world will kill you And rejoice despite the fact This world will tear you to shreds Rejoice because you're trying your
sleep and is burning Oh, rejoice, the sky's fucking falling Oh, rejoice, the world we know is turning Oh, rejoice, your father's been calling Rejoice, although this world will devastate you Holy fuck, you're blue.